All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of Confidently Anxious. I truly enjoyed this conversation, learning someone's story that I respect a ton. Coming from a conservative background focused on discipline, logic, and definitions, John Wood shares his story of experiencing a young life crisis of prioritizing spontaneous experiences in order to establish true meaning and identity in his life. After experiencing a range of adventures from living a fisherman's life in Alaska to manual labor on a farm, working in the oil field, traveling across the country, and joining the military, John learns that being helpful, giving, and socially connected enables a happy life. Enjoy. All right, John Wood, welcome to an episode of Confidently Anxious. Thank you so much for joining, man. I really appreciate it. I was thinking of ways to kick this off and just kind of want to start out by saying, obviously we we know each other. I respect and admire you a ton. Um, You're a genuine person. You're a kind hearted person, but you're also super curious and super interesting. You're also super logical, but you're super open-minded. So yeah, I think all these things are going to tie into this story today, but I know you wanted to start coming from sort of a conservative youth upbringing, uh, maybe a good place to start would be, I don't know, maybe examples of how this was kind of put on you from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I appreciate the, uh, the nice things there. Um, no, I, I was thinking about this right before I hopped on, actually, because I had my dogs outside trying to get some exercise out because I didn't know how long we'd be talking. And we have one dog, two and a half years old, German Shepherd Husky mix. And he is, I mean, if you throw a ball, he'll see a butterfly halfway there and then he'll just chase the butterfly around the yard and then he'll just lie down and take a nap. And our, our other dog, seven month old, um, purebred German Shepherd, she won't do anything but chase the ball. She's obsessed with it, right? She doesn't like people. She doesn't like any other distractions, she has just honed in on that. And it's funny how it's just their personalities were there like the day they were born, right? Since the day we got them, they've both exhibited those characteristics. So um, yeah, we had talked about ideas for, you know, kind of the narrative of what we wanted to talk about today. Um, I think how you're brought up definitely affects you a lot, but part of it really is just kind of how you, how you, you know, exit the womb. Um, so my background was yeah, a bit more, uh, non-traditional. So conservative family, um, I was very religious growing up. I was very black and white, very logical. Um, but at the same time, there were like kind of elements of later endeavors. You know, I, I read a lot when I was a kid, I loved stories of adventure when I was, a, when I was, I think 11, maybe younger, I read the story of the helicopter pilots from Mogadishu, you know, the movie Black Hawk Down. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I read that story and I was like, wow, I want to do that. And so I would, I would go out and, you know, we had a pool, but I was born in Florida and I would like swim laps in the pool to train up for it. I would, you know, go out in the back and practice, uh, you know, my army tactics and, and running and stuff like that. And so, Um, yeah, interesting how like all that, it's like the environment shaped a lot of it, but 
at the same time, it's like who you are is, is already there. Well, wait, what age is this, by the way? Like age frame, would you like, are we talking zero all the way up until you go to college is kind of the stage we're talking about? Oh yeah. In generalities, that was kind of, you know, my whole, my entire life has been consistent in that regard in terms of, you know, when you have to decide who you are, it's really, for me, it was really about, um, 16, 17 that I started thinking and probably about 22 until I had a path to really figure it out. So where does the um, conservative nature come from inside of the family? Is just like your entire family mostly conservative? Like which, uh, which, which state did you grow yeah, up in? My, my dad was a pastor. He runs a nonprofit now. So very, very involved in that. Um, would help him out and, and involved in that. Um, when I went to college, I studied uh, Christian studies at a Southern Baptist university. Got it. And I was Catholic at the time, but I loved it because I loved the conflicts, the debate mm. and stuff. You know, I'd have, I'd have disagreements with my professors in class and then we'd get out of class and I'd go to lunch and I'd have arguments with everybody at lunch. <laughs> and then I would go and I would study. And it was like the, the point of the studying was because I knew that there was going to be a confrontation and I wanted to prepare for it. So it became, it was, it was mostly, I feel like it was largely an academic exercise. Mm. Um, more so than a faith-based, I didn't see necessarily the utility of the of the faith element at the time. Mm, got it. And was that because of your upbringing, or was that more true to your core personality? So upbringing, I I, I am very thankful for the way I was brought up because my parents demonstrated values to me, and they said this is right, this is wrong. It's good to be ethical. It's good to treat people well, and so. From that, it was like, okay, this is what I have to do. And so I'm going to apply the disciplines to get there. Mm. So it, was, it wasn't necessarily uh, forced on me. It was, this is what we believe. And I said, okay, then I'm going to do it 110%. Mm. Because I, I, I have, I, I, I've had a conversation with a close friend about this. I have difficulty doing anything for its own sake or like dabbling in something. My belief is if you're going to do something, you should commit like wholeheartedly to it. Mm -hmm. And if you don't believe it or you don't want to do it, then just don't pretend to. Wow. Okay. Well, ha have you always had that attitude? Just like. Yeah, pretty much. Wow. Pretty much. Dang. Which I'm trying to be less of that, honestly. Like that, that sounds good right now, probably. But it means that, you know, I was talking to somebody about like, why would I, why would I take up golf if I'm not going to be good at golf? If I don't have, you know, four to six days a week to train purposefully, then why would I go and do something? And then, and yeah. so it, it is restricting in some areas because I can't just go and enjoy, you know, a nice day out with friends. Yeah. I guess it, it kind of reinforces being close-minded a little bit because you have to be all or nothing in that way. And I, I feel like humans are naturally gravitated towards being all or nothing for some reason, but I guess like reestablishing balance is always a good idea too. I don't know. Is yeah. that, um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've like learned some of that as we get more into the story, but yes, yes. And where I'm at now, I'm, I, 
I can at least acknowledge that as a uh, principle, whether I'm actually practicing it yet. <laughs> I think it's a work in progress. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. So I, I would say um, there were a couple books that influenced me at the time. Uh, one of them was called The Way of the Ascetic. Mm. And it was about these Egyptian monks that lived in the uh, Egyptian desert. And I was like, that is like the most hardcore that you could possibly be. And so I was like, all right, I want to practice some of these things then because that is as hardcore as you can get. Oh, wow. And so, <laughs> and, oh, okay, I didn't move to the desert and become a monk. But um, Wait, what? That, that is something that I looked at and I was like, oh, that's cool. But wait, why, why is that like the most um, like monks in the desert? Like what about it? Oh, in terms of like, you know, being, so in the, in the Catholic tradition, you have like different uh, orders and disciplines. Mm. And so for example, there's a, there's a group in California called the Novertines and they, their mission in life is prayer. So if you believe prayer is communication with God and prayer is the most important thing, then that, then anything else is a distraction. So talking would be a distraction. So wow. you wouldn't talk. And so this order has taken like, they, they don't talk, they don't communicate with their family. Like their wow. goal, their mission in life is to pray. And that's what Wow. They okay. So, yeah. so that's where you were on the whole all or nothing. You were like, Hey, if we're going to devote ourselves to this, we might as well. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So. Wow. That's so interesting. It, it does. Um, the way that looks too is very, uh, like, um, Cause I guess like prayer, obviously you can think of it as like a meditative, actually like praying, you know, to God or prayer can be kind of embedded inside of your actions or something like that. You could take it as that type of concept too, to where you're still doing it, but right. not like actually like, I don't know what word I'm trying to think of. <laughs> and, and there's an order for that too, right? The, the, you know, prayer and work, St. Benedict, or at Labora. And so their their prayer and labor were both reflections of that spirit. Oh, okay. Wait, what? Can, can you speak more on that? I, I'm not familiar with that. Yeah. So St. Benedict, um, he lived a long time ago, but it's a very, it's one of the largest or, uh, orders in the Catholic Church. And so each order has a motto and vows that they take. And so the Benedictines... St. Benedict's phrase was ora et labora, which is a Latin phrase for pray and work. And so the idea is that you're praying and you're working. And it, I, I don't know if it's like a reflection of idle hands or of the devil as well. Like that, that's a, that's more of like a Puritan uh, mindset, but um, yeah, very, very interesting tradition in the sense. It's like the, the whole concept, the whole being, it's not, like humans aren't just spiritual, they're also physical. Mm. And so you need to use both in the proper manifestation. Yes. I think that's really important too, is putting it into action, especially as we get, you know, just like the more you mature inside of life, I think the more you start realizing that action matters. To kind of tie it back a little bit, I wanted to talk more on uh, the values you were talking about with being raised from conservative. This is going to take a long time, I can already tell, because like... I'm already interested. Um, yeah. Which values uh, were you kind of referring to? Um, so, I mean, basic Judeo-Christian, right? Ten Commandments, 
Um, there is a strong emphasis on the value of work. If just as a secular, you know, religious perspective and my parents were I, growth mindset wasn't really a term at the time, but my parents were very big on growth mindset in the sense of like my dad sat me down when I was 15 and he said, um, you know, what, what, what do you, what do you want to do? Like you can do whatever you want. Like if you want to go to an Ivy league school, if you want to you know, start a business, if you like literally any, any profession that you want to go in, you can do it. You just have to put in work. And so if you put in work now, like you'll be able to get there. And so what do you want to do? And I'm, I'm 15. And I was like, well, the only thing I really care about right now is basketball. So that's like really important to me. <laughs> Because I was playing basketball and I was so zoned in on how I could be the best basketball player that I, I literally couldn't think about wow. anything else at the time. <laughs> yeah. So, but that makes um, sense though. I resonate with that. Yeah. I loved basketball too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which, and then I had a, a kind of a Jesus moment when I realized, like, okay, I'm, I'm playing in a not the most competitive league and <laughs> wow you know, my my prospects of college in the nba are very slim so i had to look at other options uh after that dude wow which i ended up running cross country in college randomly i don't know if i told you that uh no you didn't but i'm just like surprised at how similar we are in that way because i loved basketball i was so committed and then I was like, dude, I'm I'm in some small private school playing, and I'm like five eight. <laughs> it's not going anywhere. <laughs> it it's not going anywhere. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah. what position? Did you play? I was point guard, so I was yeah, I was okay. running all over the place. <laughs> what a yeah, what same. a That's you were a point guard too. Nice, mm -hmm. yeah, dude. Basketball was just. It's so dynamic. There's so many ways you can play the game. There's like a nice flow to it also. It's so challenging. It requires like skill and athleticism. Yeah, I just, I liked all those aspects. And, and, and for me, I don't know about you, like it was one of the times when I felt calm is when I was playing basketball. You know, like when you're so fixated on a goal, like when my dog as soon as I release the ball and the ball's in the air and she's sprinting towards it, that is like her moment of flow. Right. And when I'm, when I was playing basketball, that was my moment of flow where I wasn't thinking about how to get better at basketball. I wasn't thinking about, you know, any religious principles or, or what I was going to do with my life or anything like that. All I was thinking about was how am I going to set this next play wow. up? And who am I going to pass to next? Or do I take a shot or, you know, whatever. Wow. Honestly, that makes a lot of sense for you since you naturally have that logical mind. So being able to put that into like a strategy and a flow game, that makes a ton of sense why that would be the move. Um, but yeah. that I'm curious then, because if that moves to cross country, so I've been getting into running a little bit um, or actually a lot of bit lately um, because it's very simple. You're focused on like one goal, you know, there's not like the whole strategy, logical elements to it, but I like that. Cause I can just yep. focus on pushing myself basically. Um, what, yeah. What got you into cross country after basketball? I didn't start running cross country until I was a junior in college. My freshman year, um, I was actually studying, uh, exercise science pre-med. I wasn't, I hadn't switched over yet. 
And I was still kind of very interested in, I'll call it the transcendent for lack of a better word. And I read a book by a guy named Dean Karnazes, who at the time, like David Goggins was around, but Dean Karnazes was like the guy for ultramarathon running. And he had a book called Ultramarathon Man. And I read about Western States. I read about Badwater, all these crazy experiences he's had. He had a uh, come to Jesus moment on his, I can't remember if it was like his 35th birthday or something like that. And he had run cross country and in, 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 uh, track in high school. And he was at his birthday party. He realized his life was meaningless. And so he decided to run home. And it was like 15 miles, let's say. And he had run in, I don't know how many years. And so he just started running. And then he felt that flow state. And it was like that experience of the transcend. And then he, he kept chasing that in the Western States 100. It's one of the most famous ultras. Um, and, and Badwater 135 is through Death Valley. It's 135 miles, 120 degrees. Like you have to change, you have to run on the white line the entire time and change because your, your shoes will literally melt off if you run on the asphalt, but they'll still melt on the white lines. So you go through several pairs of shoes in the course. Oh of my gosh. And so I was, I think on Christmas break, home visiting my family and, um, I read this book when we were on the way, you know, my family lives in Greenville. We went to Asheville and we were coming back and, uh, and I read it on the way up and I was like, you know what, I'm going to run home. <laughs> and so I bought a pair of running shorts at REI and, uh, some running shoes. And then I had my dad drop me off and I ran like, you know, 14 or 15 miles back. Wow. And it was easier because it was like the downhill, right? Going off would have been a different story. But I was like, yeah, I'm going to get into running. I'm going to run an ultra marathon. And I had a friend who was into running. He had a uh, contact at the local uh, Furman University is close to here. And Furman is a huge, like, mecca of running resources. There's a guy there, uh, Dr. Scott Murr. Uh, he, with another guy, uh, Bill Pierce, started the Furman Institute of Running and Scientific Training, and they wrote a book called Run Less, Run Faster. It was in Runner's World and everything. And so I went and talked to him, and I remember being in his office, and I said, hey, how, how many months should I train up before I run an ultra marathon? And he's like, how many marathons have we run? And I was like, none. And he's like, well, you shouldn't run an ultra until you run a marathon. And then you should run a 50K and then you should run a 50 miler and then a hundred miler and stuff like that. And so I was like, okay, so I need to run a marathon. So I was like, all right. So I get on Google, Google Earth <laughs> or map my run at the time was what I used. And I mapped out from my house over Paris Mountain and back was, it was 13 miles there, 13.1. So I, I found a specific building where I could like refill my water bottle. I didn't really know anything about nutrition and hydration. So I brought a packet, like one gel packet and a water bottle with me. Uh. And then I ran there and I ran back and I walked in the door and my family was like, are you okay? And I was like, whoa, <laughs> it was rough. Um, but I did that. And then later that spring, I did an official marathon, the Twisted Ankle Marathon in North Georgia. And I was looking for the transcendent and I got it. Like it was a wild, wild experience. I, um, this was a, 
it's on gas and power lines in, in North Georgia. So straight up, straight down. I picked it because it had the most elevation change of any marathon in the area. So I figured if I could do this marathon and complete it, then the 50K or 50 mile would be oh, a problem. Animal. Okay. And, and so I still didn't know. I still didn't learn my lesson. <laughs> and so I run this marathon and now I have like three gels with me. And I'm like, you know, they had stuff to eat there on uh, like every five miles or so. And um, I started the race, was doing pretty well. And I picked this guy. I, he would walk up hills, which is a tactic for races like that. You can serve energy. And so you can end up having a faster time depending on your pacing and, and, and level of running. So he is walking up these hills and I'm like, catching this guy. Then I'd pass him, I'd run up the hill. And then on the downhills, he'd pass me. And so we kept doing, we leapfrogged a dozen times in the course of this race. And I started getting like pretty tired um, as we were closing in and come around. There's a, there's a, there was a series of switchbacks and there was an aid station at the top. And I was like, you know, how far is it? And they're like, he's just in. You can catch him. And I was like, oh, man. Oh, oh, man. And so I like didn't get any stuff at the, at the, aid, at the rest stop or Ooh. whatever. And I just run down. I like bombed down these switch. Like, you know, trail running, you have an option. You can like pick your footing or you can just bomb it. And so I just, I was just like, all right, hope this ends up okay. And I just bombed it down this, these switchbacks. <laughs> oh my gosh. I come out, I remember this meadow and I remember seeing him and somebody said the finish line is just around the corner. And I was like, oh man. And so I, I, he's walking up this hill. And so I just put my head down and I went as hard oh. as I could and I passed him. And then like my legs just like were stopping working after I got out of sight of him. Like my, my calf was seizing up and my, my hamstring was seizing up and I like tripped and fell. I did a couple somersaults a couple times. And then I remember having this like dream sequence and I was like, I, I, I felt like I was just dreaming. And then I woke up and I was on the side of this embankment, like where this lake was. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what it was doing. And then I was like, I just immediately turned over, threw up. I took my shoes off. And then I was like, all right, I got to figure out what I'm doing here. And then I said, I'm running a race. Okay. Wow. And then I looked around and I saw a little ribbon and I was like, that's a ribbon. And I couldn't remember which way I had come from. And then I saw a runner go by me and I was like, oh, okay. It's that way. <laughs> and so... I just had my shoes in my hand and I started walking to the finish line. The finish line literally was, it was probably 300 meters down. It was passing another corner. So nobody had seen me. And, um, I remember the, like the guy in the loudspeaker was like, Oh, we might need uh, EMS to come take a look. And my dad and my brother were there. And so I sat down on this bench and they were asking me what day it was. And I was like, Tuesday. And they're like, it's Saturday. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then this is, this may sound fake, but I, I had a out of body experience. Like I literally was watching myself have a conversation wow. with the EMT from about 20 feet over my body. And, um, <laughs> I, and then I like had this reel of like things that had happened in my life run by. 
and oh my then gosh. I, I, I kind of like went like that and I was back in my body and they gave me a bunch of power rays to drink and I chugged them all, which I later found out is a bad idea. Don't have electrolytes <laughs> after, so then I ended up throwing up all the power aid, but, oh. um, that was like my foray into endurance running. And then I took a couple weeks off because like I had pretty bad heat stroke. And then I started running again. That, su- that was in May. Started running in the summer. Trained up that year. I did the uh, Marine Corps Marathon that fall, just a road race. And then I did wow. uh, a couple 8Ks, um, which is the college distance. And then that spring, I ran a 40 miler. Um, which honestly went fine. The, like I, I, I had learned about nutrition after I had the out of body experience. I like really, and I was studying exercise science. So I realized like, Oh, okay. I was really dumb. And I, wow. I got that dialed in. Um, so I did that. And then I really just wasn't happy with what I was doing. I was at the university of South Carolina. Um, and I was doing okay, but I just, my heart really wasn't in it. And I decided I was going to drop out of college at this point. Wait, wait, wait. Before we get into this, um, I, I just wanted to like bring it back to the out of body experience really quick. Um, like where did you, where did that come from? You think just like complete exhaustion? Like, was it, uh, what was that run like from the standpoint of you being maxed out, but still going further? I mean, I don't know. Like what's going I, on in I your head? <laughs> I, I, I've looked into it a little bit and it, it has happened to other people. Um, something to do with your brain, not getting enough energy. Mm. So I think I was just so severely depleted that when I pushed, but my brain just said, all right, like we're, we're taking over this, this has to stop. Like if we go any, if we go any more like bad things are going to happen. And so my brain just shut off. And I think what happened, this is how we put it together. So I was on top of this, um, embankment with the path and then the lakes here, I think I tripped and fell into the lake. And then I like floundered a little bit because the guy that I passed (laughs) ran by me and he was like, he came up after the race and he's like, dude, I, I saw you in the lake. I thought you finished and went back and jumped in. Oh my God. And I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, no, no recollection. He's like, okay, dude. So I'm sorry for not stopping. Like you just looked like you were just swimming a little bit. And so, <laughs> That's but, hilarious. Yeah. You should, yeah. Look into, look into like, uh, endurance events and out of body experiences. It's, it's an actual, phenomenon yeah well it's i feel like a common trait of people who get into ultra running in particular is i don't know just people who have really deep minds and who think a lot and who can process a lot i feel i don't know if that's like what you found in the community people who are just you know like i'm gonna turn my brain off and go yeah and it's it's the flow state that's what you're chasing you're just chasing that moment of perfect calm Everyone has a like the, the runner side that people talk about. Like they're the experience I think that most people chase in ultra running is that peaks and valleys thing. Mm. It's like you don't realize like how low you can feel emotionally. Like there's times when you like just want to cry and it's like everything hurt, like li- literally everything hurts. You know, your your toenails are ripped off and you're just, 
like moving carefully so that you don't have a cramp takeover and mm. like you'll get a cramp on your side or something like that. Um, but then when you're feeling good, it's like your legs aren't even, you're not, you're not moving your legs. It's like, wow. you're just, you're, you're like weightless and you're it's just there. floating and you're in nature. And, and this is like a really pretty area too. Oh yeah. Like the, the one I did in, um, the, the 40 miler was the same area where the Patriot was filmed. You know, the movie with Mel Gibson. Uh, I've heard of it. I haven't seen it though. Okay. So there, there's a, yeah, you should, you should great movie, but there's a scene in the movie where like, um, Heath Ledger is Mel Gibson's son. He gets captured by the British and they're in the woods and it's like nice trees, ferns. It's beautiful. Birds are chirping. That's the, that's the experience. Like, a road marathon to contrast that with like you do a rock and roll marathon or you do the Marine Corps marathon. It's just totally different. Like you have people there, mm. you can, you can see buildings. It's like a different animal that I think is both have their perks. The perk of the road marathon is that you have actual people encouraging you there. You yeah. Have people that you know that can cheer you on. And that's a, that's an emotional boost, which equates to a better performance more energy but in the in the um trail it's you don't need that push because you literally just like you're zone out uh-huh. you're not actually trying you're just like your body is just just going okay so would you say marathoning is more of that race component going for time and then ultra running is more like let's just let's do this race well and like lose ourselves and go as far as we can type of thing for I'd say for the, for a lot of people. So unless you're trying to win it, most people are like, you know, challenging themselves, like trying to beat themselves on that day. Like mm. You're trying to have the best day that you can have. Um, I, I really, there was some people I really wanted to beat. So I was still kind of in race mode. Like there was one guy that I, I remember we, we were at the halfway turnaround in this one race and I, and I left them and I had this really hard push. And then we're in the middle of the woods. We're crossing a train track and there was a train passing and I was losing my mind. <laughs> I, was like, I was counting how much time and I was like, there is no way that I just did that. And now I have to wait here for a train in the middle of the woods. Like, this is insane. This sounds like the uh, worst. Oh my gosh. Patience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Ultimate. that. I, I feel like, you know, cause then you're, you're a little bit out of, you're in that flow and then you get thrown off by something like that. You have to like recalibrate mm, and like yeah. settle back in and like find your rhythm again. You don't want to freak out because that happens and like, all right, now I really have to push and like pick up your pace too much and burn yourself out cause you're mm. redlined. I've heard of that too. Like during a race, anything can happen. Just like the most random thing will happen that can throw you off or something. So you kind of have to just like prepare for that. Yeah. Especially if it's a little thing and then you start worrying like, oh man, still got, heel kind of feels weird. (laughs) So got 30 miles to go. This doesn't own up, right? (laughs) (laughs) My stomach's a little bit upset. Am I going to throw, oh, uh, I hope. Did, did I pick the wrong gel? Like, should I have gone hammer gel instead of goose? Like, you know, all, all those little things. So, but you can mitigate that by training. That's the point of training is to 
mimic the situation so that when you're in the situation, mm. it's like, you can just say, well, I've been here before and I know that this is the right answer. Okay. I feel like that's a common, uh, cause I haven't done an ultra run, but I've like, uh, I know people who've done it before and I feel like that's a common thing too, to kind of like tell yourself is we've been here before and we can keep going. Yeah. Yeah. This is not new. This is fine. Yeah. Everything's going to be okay. Dang. Okay. And uh, as far as running goes before, you know, we get into post-college and all that, um, did that bring out a stronger part of you? Cause for me, who's just now getting into it, I think I'm doing it because I feel like the more I do it and the more distance I cover, I feel stronger afterwards as a person. And I just like want to carry that into other aspects of my life where you kind of feeling those benefits too from the racing. I was, I was very disciplined. Like how I felt did not matter. All, all that mattered was like the execution of the things that I said I was going to do. Wow. Which didn't make me a very fun person. <laughs> like <laughs> my wife and I joke, like if we had met when we were both 20 years old, like we probably would not have been friends because I just wasn't a fun person. Mm. I was so focused on my goals and what I was trying to achieve that anything that d- detracted from that, I just didn't have time for. I was not interested in it. See, that's why I said um, when we started this whole episode, that's why I led with that because I think you're so interesting because I can see how you could be super rigid and just like, this is it. But you're also just like super open-minded and like a curious person. Well, it's, it's, it's the black and white, right? It's, it's the values that you are shown and it's like, these, this is right. This is wrong. This is good. This is bad. And it's like, okay, so if this is bad, then I don't want anything to the left of this mm, thing yeah. right here. Yeah. And there's value in those positive constraints because when you're disciplined, there's no like there's no uh, there's no room to get outside of it, which can be actually like really freeing, ironically, for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Dang man, I I really I didn't know that you did all that running. Like I, I didn't know you like were in it in it like that. Did you? Um, oh be- yeah. Before we close out running, just because I'm interested, did you experience any like physical injuries? Oh, yeah. Definitely. Um, I did not approach it in a smart way. I thought volume was the answer. And so like my high volume day on a Wednesday would be, I would, I would, uh, swim two miles. I would row a 10 K and then I'd run 10 miles. That would be my high volume, like cross training day. And then on the weekend I would run I would wait until late on a Friday night and then I'd run early on a Saturday morning because you want to practice running on a, uh, in a tired state. And so I'd run, I'd like hang out with friends, watch a movie. And then around midnight I would go and I'd run 15 miles and then I'd wake oh up my at 6 gosh. AM and I'd run like another 10 or 12. And, Animal. <laughs> and it was, um, Again, not, not great, which is, you asked me about why I had the injury now, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, yeah, no, I did, I did. Well, I actually, when I was talking about, is that an injury and stuff, like a couple of the races that I did, um, that 40 miler is the one that I think of because I had hurt my heel, um, about three weeks beforehand. And so I hadn't actually run before the race for three weeks. 
I oh. had just been doing cross training and, and swimming beforehand to like try to maintain my cardio. And so I started out because I was I had signed up for it with a friend, and I was like, well, if I I'll, if I drop out two miles in, like whatever, but I'm just gonna give it a shot. So yeah, and it worked out. Wow! Oh my gosh, that's like show what you're made of. Did you feel the the backlash of not training for that three weeks, or was it surprisingly just normal? I I think I was pretty overtrained at that point, and so by not running, I think it actually helped me. Like I, I, yeah, I, I was, I didn't know what it felt like to run fresh. <laughs> and so when I ran that race, I was like, dude, I, I just have another gear. I don't know what this is. Wow. Nice. Dude, the worst is when you're running and you're not recovered and your legs feel so heavy. I hate it when that happens. And I'm like, dude, my legs feel like, yeah, yeah they're like yeah. dragging right now. <laughs> um, okay. So Gosh, I, I just can't get over how, um, and this is going to like tie in to, I guess, other elements of this story, but I just can't get over how like you can just make a decision and you just go just like the whole fucking way. <laughs> There's just like no disagreement. Otherwise, I don't like where, um, where does that come from? You think is that just tying back into personality, black and white upbringing? This is it. I'm going all the way. I, I think so. Yeah, I think, uh, I think I learned that from my dad as well. Um, he, if he thinks something is worth doing, like he, there's been times in his life when he's made like major life decisions just like that uh, because he felt like it was the right thing to do. And so I, I, I wonder if some of it's genetic, maybe some of it's learned. Um, but at the, at, it's, it's not a hundred percent doing it for just because like there is a, uh, a matrix involved in terms of why would I do this? What are the benefits of it? Um, how am I able to do it? And then in all of those things, like, am I able to do it? I believe so, but I don't actually know unless I do it. And so I don't want to say that I didn't try because if I didn't try, then um, that's just not how I want to live my life. Dude, that's such a, that's such a good principle to live by too. Cause naturally I'm always like, uh, oh, advocate for balance, you know, like slow, steady, warm up to it, go big, which is good. But at the same time, like having a principle of just being a person who you don't half ass the things that you do, that sounds really enticing. Like that sounds like a really beneficial grounder. Which it's, it's pros and cons, right? Because you're, if you do that, then you're going to miss out on other things like, um, investing in relationships and hobbies and things like that. So it's not like, yeah, that's definitely the way to live. It's a way to live if you are very dedicated to a specific outcome. Mm. But if you just want to balance life, I don't think that's why I actually, I would, I disagree with David Goggins's approach of, you need to wake up at 3 a.m. You need to put in 20 miles. You need to do all these things. It's like, what other things could you be doing with that? Energy? Yeah. It's good to be fit. It's good to motivate. Like he's, he's an inspirational figure. So he's affected more people by doing for, that. But yeah. For most people, if you have a family, if you have friends, if you have work, like there are other outlets to channel that energy into. Wow. No, that's great. Cause for David, obviously with his, 
career, who he is as a person, like his contribution for the world, it would make sense that that level of intensity would be able to like impact people and touch them, which is awesome. But I think that's a good distinction mm-hmm. you're making on being balanced. I can tell that marriage has probably balanced you out too. <laughs> I feel like I relate with that too. Once I got married, I'm like, okay, I, I don't need to be so rigid here. <laughs> like there's other elements of life that have a lot of meaning inside of them that I should like dedicate time and energy for. Cause to really be all or nothing, I guess you have to sacrifice so much for those things. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah. I, I agree with you as well. Yeah, 100%. But hey, there's a way that people, I feel like people can have it all too. I mean, not have it all, but you can be balanced, but continue raising the standard at which you perform. But if you do it right with patience, I think you can still have a nice, happy mix of both of them. You know, And that that is the key word there, patience. Consistency is, yeah, you can do anything if you're consistent. But something has to be very meaningful if you're going to be consistent at it for multiple years at a time. Yeah, and that's the tough part. And then you have to worry about shifting values yeah. too. Like, is it as important to you now as it was when you were mm, at this point? Yeah, that's like a different discipline because it's a slow and steady, like far-reaching discipline instead of like, I'm going to be disciplined for this year and just do it. <laughs> so very interesting. It's doable though. It's probably just takes a lot of reflection and creativity in your mind on how to like approach it. Um, yeah, there's a lot there. Which I, I think you shouldn't even worry about that. I, I, I think like, don't think about how Reed got successful or how this other person got successful. Mm. It's just knowing what your tenant, like my tendency is concentrated burst. It's not the slow burn. And I know that. Mm. So therefore, I'm going to look for areas that need people who can do concentrated mm. bursts rather than the slow burn. And so like, you know, the, the job I'm doing now, it's um, it's not the same, like, there's constantly like a, a few small fires to put out and it's different every day and you have to balance conflicting needs. And that's great because I like doing that, right? So it's just a different style. Are you, so you're meaning um, like the slow periods and then it's like all of a sudden short burst in it and then you go back down to a slow period. So that's why you like the work environment you're in? Yeah, because you can be preparing in those slow, which we can get into that in the military. Yeah. uh, You know, backgrounds. Yes, but good distinction you made on focusing on you, your natural talents and where your, uh, where your mind kind of naturally gravitates towards. I think that's what, um, honestly fucks a lot of people up is <laughs> they like give into this negative comparison that they have to be like someone else, like David Goggins, for instance, like there's so much inspiration you can take away from him, but I'm not going to go like, you know, do something that intense. And if I did spend my time that way, I don't think it would align with me like long-term and it'd probably not be a waste of time, but it wouldn't be like my path, so to speak. So, um, yeah, no, that's a good distinction you made. What got you out of running when you're so in it? Yeah. (laughs) So there was a transition period because I, there was a, the, the Southern Baptist university I was talking about, I went and visited there just, you know, um, 
my sister had me going there and she's like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a good environment. I was like, Oh, I'll go stop by. When I was looking at the campus, the uh, admissions people were like, well, step, just hop in the office. And I go in the office and they like, and they asked me, do you have any um, sports that you play? And I said, I like to run. And so they said, have you run like, uh, or I put running down and I put 8K, I put my 8K time from the year prior. Oh, what, what was it, if you don't mind sharing? Oh, uh, it's not a good, it was like a 33-30. Okay. <laughs> uh, so not like anybody who's run at the college level will be like, oh, okay. But this was a terrible program. The coach was a like special teams football coach. They just switched over and made the cross country coach. So the coach calls me in the office or like on the phone and he's like, Hey, do you want to join the cross country team? And I was like, um, maybe he's like, we'll give you a scholarship. They'll work out all the other details and you know, there'll be a full ride and blah, blah, blah. And so I was like, all right, sure. You know, I didn't like what I was doing at USC. Um, I wanted to study languages and I liked history. And so their, their Christian studies program that I did was like a mix mash of, it was, it's kind of like an ancient near Eastern history because you're studying Hebrew, you're studying the, the Mesopotamian societies and stuff like that. You, you know, I took Greek, um, and then there's the added value of the in and out of class debates. And so I honestly had a pretty good time, not from a social or having fun time, but just because it was a discipline and um, I was able to do something that I liked because I was like, I like running. So therefore cross country will be awesome. And it was a totally different experience. Really? Like, okay. Oh uh, yeah. Cross country is rough. Um, it, uh, I honestly, so I, I did have good teammates, but the teammates were like brutally honest with me. Uh, I remember after the first meet, it was just a warm up race at Western Carolina and it was a 5k and I ran like a 1805 and afterwards, like two of my teammates came over to me and they were like, Hey, um, are you feeling okay? Like what's wrong? And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, well, you kept up in the set training sessions. And so I feel like you just like didn't push yourself hard enough or something. And I was like, so mad. Wow. <laughs> Cause I was like, that's the best, the fastest I've ever run. You know, I was running so long. I wasn't doing any speed work. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's not bad. Right. Then I had teammates that were, you know, a minute and a half faster than me. And they were like, why are you running an 1805? Uh, and I was like, oh, okay. And so then I like, I was really trying to push it on the races after that. And I still wasn't getting great. Like there were 8K distances. And so I would, I would get like uh, high 29s, low 29s. And I just couldn't break that barrier for the, for the five mile distance. And, and I was looking into this and I found this guy uh, from South Africa, Tim Noakes, who has an idea of the central governor theory. And it's the idea that your brain regulates the maximum output based on the estimated duration of the activity. So if you, if your brain thinks that like this is going to last for hours, it's going to limit the maximum level of exertion. 
if it thinks it's going to last for 45 minutes, then you can go this much. If it thinks it's going to last this. And so the central governor theory says that you basically have to raise your limiter, but to get past that limiter mm. can be like very, you have to like have maximal efforts multiple times, which I had because it's a cross country season and we're racing every weekend. So every week, every week I would like, try to go into like Zen mode before a race, I would just kind of go off by myself and I'd close my eyes and I would like, I would visualize like a, a calm environment. And then course of the race, I would just try to like, literally try to just disassociate what I was feeling from what I was doing. Um, and so I got, I got faster by the end of the season, but not, not, uh, I was like mid pack at best during my call. Wow. So you, you think, um, you just couldn't cross that mental barrier to really make some serious speed gains. Is that. So the speed gains, like I, I dropped, I started at a 29.55 from my first race that season. And last race was a 28.07 and it, it dropped in the court. I dropped like a minute in one race because it, the effort actually didn't feel as hard. And I, I think that's when I crossed the threshold for it. It was just like, it, I, I wasn't having to fight it anymore. I could just go with it and the time dropped. If that yeah. makes any sort of sense. No. Yeah. So I, I, I'm a big uh, believer in that central governor theory idea. No, I mean, I, I feel like that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. So that was season one. Season two, I stopped caring about running because I spent that summer in Colorado working on a cattle ranch. And that was like crucial for me. So there's certain people at certain times in my life that like influenced me. And one of them was the guy that I was working with on that ranch. And it was talk about philosophy being all in your head in a classroom. Um, this guy was like one of the best philosophers I've ever met and he had his life in order, but our philosophizing would occur, um, on a, on a lease near a national forest while we're, you know, taking a break from fixing fence Oh wow! or doing something like that. And so that was like, wow. Okay. What, what do I want to do with my life? Like who, who do I want to be? How do I want to spend my time? And I started, losing some of the motivation like you know why why am i killing myself for like there's the team aspects i don't want to let my team down but like for for me personally like why do i care about um this endeavor when i went back to racing cross country that that next season not to get ahead of myself so you're going from the positive constraints of running you're going from the logic inside of theology, maybe like debating over the nuances. And then you have this summer in Colorado where someone is teaching you a different side of philosophy to, I guess, like value your own personal experience. And then is, is that kind of like the attitude going into season two? Yeah, it was rather than the extreme physical endeavors that resulted in transcendent experiences it was the how contented I felt or how content I felt after like a really hard day of manual labor. And 
being able to drive by a fence post and look at it and be like, oh, I, I set that fence post. I ran that wire. Like I built that and that exists now because mm. I did that. I, I created something wow. rather than just saying that I did something. Wow. Okay. Dang. So total like shift in uh, mindset here. How did you uh, get to Colorado for the summer? My brother-in-law was raised on this branch. I was thinking about what I was going to do for the summer. And so I asked for his brother's phone number and I called him and I asked, hey, do you need any help this summer? And so uh, he said, yeah, sure. And he's like, we can't pay you a whole lot. And I was like, that's fine. <laughs> See something to do. <laughs> it was literally like the, the best experience, like amazing fit. Like I saw uh, just amazing family, different style of how they were, were, you know, instilling values, but values nonetheless. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was like a formative experience for me. Really? Okay. So was this like a more balanced family value type of setting and so it was like different from your upbringing it was more wild honestly oh, okay <laughs> uh, and i don't mean that in the sense of it was just like hey like life is to work but it's also to just have fun mm. so if it was a really nice day we'd take a break and, and like we'd go do something instead nice okay and was that like your first kind of consistent having that inside of your life? I won't say first. I'm making it sound like I was a uh, working in a coal mine when I was growing <laughs> up. But it, 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 it was a... Reminder? It was a reminder, like, I think from sitting down at 15, like, you can do anything to this... It was, it wasn't you can do anything. It was what do you want to do? And then whatever crazy idea I had... The reception was, oh, cool. Yeah, you should try it. Which is, it's a subtle difference. But yeah. was, I just, I needed somebody to, um, you know, entertain my crazy ideas. Nice. I mean, and that's planting the seeds for you, just like hopping from one thing to the other and trying out different things. Um, right, right. Got it. Okay. So, so uh, do you have any other stories from like this farm experience before we like, uh, I guess, get into you returning to school? Oh, I mean, it was, I had a, a 94 F-150 to drive around on these dirt roads. Uh, it was like, it's just beautiful. Yeah. And there's something about when you're in a beautiful place doing manual labor. I think a lot of people, if you, if you take a trip, you should go there to do something. You shouldn't. Which, okay, it's also a debate, like a, a difference of opinion I have with my significant other. But like, uh, you know, one of the best experiences I had, I would go watch after this lease. We had a pop-up camper. There was a, a herd of like 250 head up there. And um, I remember waking up one morning and I like poked my head out and there was just like a herd of elk cresting this ridge Aww. as the sun was coming up and it was just like you know my i'm getting goosebumps just thinking about wow. it. so little things like that um yeah and, and and the family aspect i got really close with 
the kids in the family and just seeing them develop and grow older and stuff. I'm going to one of them, their uh, weddings in July. Actually. Oh, nice. Yeah. So it's, it's been, it's been really cool. Dang, that's cool. You, so you still like call them routinely or something like every, I don't know, every few months or a year or something. Keep, yeah. They're uh, not everybody. But some of them came to our wedding, stuff like that. Okay. Yeah, so nice. Dude, this sounds like, honestly, like a very fulfilling summer because you got nature, you got family, you got manual labor. Honestly, like <laughs> from a minimalist <laughs> standpoint, that's what you need to be happy. So <laughs> I know I got a little bit of running, but honestly, it was like by the end of the day, I was like, oh man, <laughs> I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you have like this switch in, uh, I guess, tone going into your, and this is like your senior year of college altogether. That was going into my senior year. Yep. And then senior year, um, I started dating this girl and I was like, okay, so I'm probably going to stay in the area because she wants to. Um, I started looking for jobs. I found this job with a, a medical device company and I started training up for that job late. Like I graduated May 1st. We had an early graduation and started the training for it my girlfriend and i broke up and i was like man what am, what am i doing with my life a week into this training like why like that was my reason for staying i don't have it anymore and prior to that i had been telling everybody i wanted to go work in alaska and i had had a conversation with this guy that someone had put me in contact with um who was a the captain of a, a fishing tender in up there and I got a phone call and he called me and he said, Hey, because back in November, he had said, if you want a job, go to Prudhoe Bay, walk the docks, you'll probably find something. I hadn't done it because of, you know, reasons aforementioned. Um, and then he called me and offered it to me and I was like, yeah, let's do it. So this is on Friday and I called my boss and I was like, Hey, this is going to be really weird, but I just had an offer to work on a fishing boat in Alaska. And so I'm going to leave. And he was like, Oh, honestly, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, so good luck. And I was like, all right. And so, yeah, I, uh, told my parents, I flew out and I got to, uh, well, that, that was a whole other deal getting to Alaska. Before we get to that, um, I want to ask what that relationship was like, because I think people I mean, it sounds like that was kind of like a trigger event too. So the dynamics of this relationship, like how did y'all meet senior year? What was the relationship like? And yeah, like, if, oh, you want the I, I mean, the you interior. don't, I mean, you don't have to go all into it, but I, I want to know like, cause I don't know, relationships sometimes are super pivotal for people and can like, I mean, it sounds like you did some like pretty adventurous things after. So yeah, like what, I don't know. Yeah. Um, she was a really nice girl. Uh, it was, again, I was a pretty boring person. And I think I had I'd said, okay, these are my qualifications. These are the qualifications. And then I kind of realized like, um, you know, just we, we weren't in alignment with like what we wanted out of life. And it mm. was kind of like, she wanted to go one path. I wanted to go to another way. I was, I was the issue in that relationship because I was not happy with where I was at. Ah, wow. Dude, that's a good, 
honestly, for a lot of um, like men, but also just people in general, sometimes it's best to just be where, I don't know, I guess it's a balance because it's nice to be where you want to be. So you attract somebody that reflects that. Um, but then mm-hmm. also you don't want to wait to be like the perfect person at the same time. But sometimes you're simply just not mature enough to attract your right person, I guess. Um, so I guess yeah, that's weird to think. At, at the, yeah, it just wasn't, which I'm glad because now I met my wife and she's, yeah. she's everything that I had hoped for. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, what was the direction she wanted to go and the direction you wanted to go? Oh man, I don't even remember. It was, uh, basically what I considered at the time, like a really boring life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, better. I wanted something adventurous. She did not. Okay. Wow. It's just so cool how like in light of you having all these like disciplined, positive constraints, you still have that like embedded adventurous desire thing that keeps like coming out. So I guess that kind of caused the yeah. breakup in some ways. Okay. Yeah, I, I would say so. And, and I think, you know, going back to identity, I didn't really know who I was. And so if you don't know who you are, like you can't really be with somebody else. Mm, I don't think. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, okay. Awesome. Sweet. Thanks for clearing that is up. That, is um, that enough? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's plenty, man. Yeah. No, but that makes a lot of sense and it's cool how the, um, curious adventurous keeps coming out. Okay. So then you get a call to go work in Alaska, which was a whole ordeal because it was a phone call and he said, Hey, I've, I've gone a boat called the ocean dream and blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, cool. So I didn't have any money at the time, so they, they bought my ticket. I hopped on a plane, I flew on a couple connector flights, ended up in Anchorage, and then I jumped on a smaller plane, went to Dillingham, and then I landed in Dillingham, and I have my email of directions, and it said hop in the Bristol Bay connector or whatever. I was like, okay. Uh, I don't see it anywhere. There's like some small planes across the street, and I'm like, I guess that's where I go next. Um, and I had a list of equipment that I needed to buy at the marina. And so I asked someone, I was like, hey, where's the marina? And they're like, it's five miles down that road. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, so I just started walking and um, I see a car come down. So I, I thumb a ride and hitchhiking super common in Alaska. And so I got picked up in like a minute and a half. Someone drove me there. I bought all my stuff. started walking back another minute and a half in. I thumbed down another ride. Guy drops me off and I was like, oh, okay, well, that was smooth. And then I go to the dude with the, uh, at the uh, airplane lot across the street. And I walk up to him and I was like, hey, I'm, I'm looking for, uh, to get to Togiak Fish. And they're like, okay. And they like, don't even ask me my name. <laughs> they're just like, all right, cool, get in. And I was like, <laughs> all right. <laughs> so I get in <laughs> this like little uh, six person um, airplane and we fly and we come in and we land and he's like, all right, everyone that, uh, is, needs to get out at Twin Hills, go ahead and get out. And I was like, okay, I think I need to go to Toyak. <laughs> he's like, okay. And so a bunch of people get out. I'm, this is like me and one other person in the plane. Uh, it doesn't even speak English. And so we take off, we fly like one minute, we land again in Toyak and I get out of the plane. And there's a van on the edge of the airstrip. It's a dirty airstrip. And I was like, uh, okay. 
So I walk up to the van and I throw my bag in and I get in and the dude driving's like, all right, where's everyone need to go? And, uh, the woman who was there, she told him, he drops her off. He's like, where are you going? And I was like, Togiak fish. And he's like, well, why didn't you get off in twin Hills? And I was like, is that where that is? I, I figured it'd be a Togiak. And he's like, what the hell are you doing? And he's like, it's that right there. And he pointed across the, across the bay. And I was like, okay, well I'll just walk around it, I guess. And he's like, no, you can't walk around it. Like there's tundra and there's bears in there. So you're going to get eaten. I was like, all right, what do you suggest that I do? He's like, uh, go ask one of those guys for a ride. And so I walked down to this little beach area and I was like, Hey man, um, I'm trying to find the ocean dream. And, uh, you think you give me a ride? And the dude like looks at me and he's like, mm, all right, get in. And so he gives me a boat ride across the harbor. We get there and I see boats and I'm like, okay, good. This is good. All right. There's boats here. And I go up to this group of dudes. Everyone's mean mugging me. Cause like, you can imagine like I'm 22, I'm clean shaven. I'm clearly like, out of place. And they're like, you know, looking me up and down and they're like, everyone just stops talking when I walk up and I'm like, Hey, I'm looking for, uh, for, uh, Daniel, uh, with the ocean dream. And they're like, ocean dream. <laughs> you ever heard of an ocean dream? And they're like, no, I've never heard of that. And this goes on. And I was like, Oh no, <laughs> I took the wrong plane. And then one of them was like, do you mean the ocean green? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> sure, sure, let's try that. They're like, Big Dan? I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah, he's right there. And they point like 50 meters away. I'm like, oh, my <laughs> God. Like, you guys could make that connection sooner. I'm over here like, you know. And so I walk up and I see this dude that just looks like a pirate. He's got a bandana on, shirt off, grease everywhere. And he looks at me and I look at him and he goes, John? <laughs> and I was like, Dan? He's like, hey! He's like, can you hear me that, that screwdriver? And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start working. <laughs> yeah, literally. Oh yeah, and then like five minutes in, this was a Vietnam era landing craft that had been retrofitted. So, you know, like the flat bottom boat that would have the shallow area in the middle and then the ramp that goes down. Okay. Um, he was down in the middle. So I jumped down. This is probably less than five minutes after I show up and he's like, he asked me to grab something else. So I was basically just a, you know, running tools to him because I didn't know anything about fixing anything. And I like step up to climb out of there and I was wearing jeans and I split my jeans like from uh. all the way down my like crotch all the way to ankle. <laughs> I was like, oh, we're off to a great start here. <laughs> so what'd you do? Did you like <laughs> replace them or Change my just pants. deal with it? I, I brought okay. like three pairs of pants with me for the whole summer. So I, ended up, <laughs> okay. I, I stole a, uh, a homeless guy's clothes that he left <laughs> out, out of a box at one point. Um, <laughs> no way. Oh yeah. But that was, that was a great experience because I realized like, Oh my, I, I don't know anything. Like I thought, I'll come here. They're going to be impressed with how like smart I am and how proficient I am and everyone's going to love me. And I was like, I, I'm literally like, I'm an idiot compared to these guys. See, they can wow. fix anything. They can do anything. They can operate any piece of machinery. At one point, wow. um, a guy's boat had sunk. Like they, they made this aluminum boat. They welded it together. It sunk 
And we go up to his boat, his like big boat, and there's a line in the water and it's in 30 feet of water. And so they're like, let's have a cup of coffee. And they sit down and I'm just there like, well, I can make the coffee, you know? (laughs) 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 And they're drinking coffee and then they're like, well, and and it was interesting because I like to use the same approach now when I have a problem is you don't try to fix the problem. Like anytime anything went seriously wrong or there was a problem that didn't have a way to like easily resolve it, don't try to fix it. It's like take a step back Mm. and do something like drink a cup of coffee and talk about something else and laugh about it. And then as you're sitting there, like just taking a break, somebody is going to have an idea and somebody's going to go, what if we used the cranes and like just pulled one after another like that? You're like, yeah, that could work. So they, that's what it was pulled with one crane, pulled with another crane, pulled with one crane until the boat was out of the water. Within wow. about 15 minutes, had the engine disassembled, uh, drained everything, put it back together, had it in the, and then re-welded it, had it in the water running within like an hour. It was insane. Wow. And I'm just saying, what? Like, wow. Okay. Dude, what a great influence too. So like shit hits the fan and they're like, all right guys, let's go. Let's go chill out. Let's have some coffee. Yeah, if something like <laughs> catastrophically breaks. It's like, mm, we're not going to try to fix it right now. We're going to drink, drink a cup of coffee and... Dude. something will come out of it wow what a great uh like testament on not letting the situation own you and just being like all right we're we're smarter than this we don't need to give in to this right now let's take a step outside and then we'll come back dang yeah. that's awesome and humor humor it's like nobody was freaking out everyone's just like looking at it and laughing like oh my god you know so I, i'm i'm sitting there around these guys that are like incredibly skilled at what they do. And I'm like trying to find a way to contribute. Cause I'm like, I'm just, I I'm literally like an extra hand to lift something. If, if they need something lifted, like how can I contribute? You know? Um, so that was, that was fun because, uh, I found one, there was a, so I, I guess there's a couple different styles of salmon fishing. Um, basically the style that they practice there, you'd have small boats or medium sized boats that would catch fish, put it in something called a brailler, and then they would transport it to a tender and the tender would have cranes on it and it would lift the bags or the brailers of fish, dump them into this huge fish tank, keep them cold, transport it back to the cannery where it would get processed. So I was on the tender, which had the refrigerating unit. And the guy that I'd replaced had been the guy that knew how to run everything. And so Dan came up and he was like, hey, do you know anything about refrigeration? And I was like, a little bit. Like, I didn't know anything. And he's like, well, we got these books. And he hands me the manual for the unit. And these these are big, big units. Like the generator is, you know, six feet tall. It's a 100K generator. It's six feet tall, like eight feet long. Refrigeration unit is just as big. And it's down underneath the deck. So these are refrigeration works via uh, pressure differentials. So you have high pressure and low pressure. So think of the equation, uh, is it Boyle's law or something? PV equals NRT. So like if the pressure is changing then the temperature changes on the other side. Okay. And I had taken chemistry. And so I knew that law. 
and he gave me the manual and then he gave me another book called Refrigeration for Pleasure Boats written in 1977 about sailboats in the Caribbean like the, the little micro things to like keep a soda cold or something wait what what, what is that? <clears throat> It was like, instead of like, here's how to operate this specific unit and here's how refrigeration for industrial stuff works. It was, here's principles of refrigeration for a sailboat in the Caribbean running a micro unit. Wow. So I, I, <laughs> the took, I took that and then I took the manual and then I like found the safe operating ranges and I took pieces of electrical tape and I pinned them to the actual gauges. And I basically lived down there for two weeks, making sure it didn't blow up. Because if they blow up, that'll blow the boat in half. It's pretty- Oh, wow. They're pretty big. Like, yeah, there's a lot of, not a lot, but there are some um, accidents that usually happen every year with with regard to something like that. So I was just like, okay, this is my, this is my thing. Like I found my thing that I'm going to contribute. <laughs> And then I was like, and I want to document it so that anybody else can come in. So like, I wrote out a series of instructions on like a uh, piece of like a legal pad of this is step one. You have to do this valve and that valve. These are the the what to look for. If it goes outside of these ranges, you need to cool it down for this long, so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, I ended up it was uh, fifty seven days on the boat. We'd shower, we'd like go into the, to the port like once a week, take a shower and stuff, like eat real food apart from like peanut butter on the boat. Uh, but it was, it was really fun, but I was ready to get back to like walking around <laughs> and not being stuck. <laughs> like if you want to get to know somebody, live on a, live in a confined space with them for wow. a couple months. Like literally when you're sleeping, it was the captain, me, and then the first mate. And so like our bunks were like this. Wow. So you're, you're literally a foot and a half away from when you're sleeping. Okay. So you're 57 days at sea. You don't come to land. Is that? No, no, no. So it's 57 days of going out and coming back. So we'd come back to port probably every week or so. It was dependent on tides. Got so it. It, okay. it could be a three day trip. It could be a five day trip. It could be like a turn and burn, so we literally drop off, refuel, head back out, or we could be there for a couple of days. Okay, so outside of the work, what was uh, socializing like? What would you do for recreation? To <laughs> or like let loose, talk. Just nice. Dang, that sounds wow. No cell. I didn't have a cell phone at the time. Well, like a, a smartphone anyway. I had a flip phone before I went there. And then there was no cell service. So I only talked to my, I called my parents once. I think I called my mom on her birthday in July. But apart from that, I didn't talk to them, anybody at all, apart from those two guys and like the people that would come visit. Dang. So y'all just like, just got to know each other's life story basically the whole time. Yeah. And that is where the emphasis on experiences really got sharpened mm. because I was talking to Dan and he was basically like, I, I realized in talking to him, like I have all of this knowledge from, from what I've read. I don't have any like real world practical knowledge. So the experiential mm. type of learning I realized was like what I needed to do to fill in the gaps. Wow. So I was like, okay, well when I get done from here, I'm just going to do as many, like I'm not doing things for the money. I'm not doing things to like for a specific goal. Like the end 
is the experience of the thing. So I was like, all right, so what jobs can I do that would offer the wildest experiences? <laughs> like at one time I thought about working at Waffle House because I was like, what's more wild than Waffle House? You know? <laughs> <laughs> at 4 a.m., man, yeah, nothing. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> night shift at Waffle House. That was like, <laughs> I did it. But <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh my gosh. Um, okay, wait. Uh, before we get into those, um, what were some, uh, just out of curiosity, what were some uh, like Dan's stories where you were like, oh man, I need to experience more in life? And like, was he uh, like throughout his conversations with you, was he saying like, dude, you need to get out and experience more type of thing? Or. Yeah. I mean, he was a philosopher. Like, he hadn't studied philosophy in school. But he had an outlook on life that was well thought out. Um, he had specific values and he lived in accordance with his values. And I realized like the good and bad. I was like, man, these guys say and do things that are bad, but they're honest and they live in accordance with their values. And I realized wow. like, I, I really like these guys. I, I had Dang. gotten a little burned out on some people that I had been around where I went to school that I just felt were disingenuous. And mm, I felt yeah. like there is this trap of using specific vocabulary and saying the right things, but not really meaning what you say. Mm. These guys, they said the wrong things, but they said exactly what they thought. Wow. And honestly, would take that any day over any the day. other. And I was like, yeah, these guys are way more fun. <laughs> wow. Do you, um, and you didn't really touch on it, but you did debate throughout college as well, right? I did. Um, so yeah, I did it in high school. Um, and then in college, I started a, all the, there was a bunch of pre-law people I became friends with that I started a uh, debate club with them. Well, it just made me think of it because you were talking about vocabulary i guess like in those settings it's kind of easier to hide behind the logic or hide behind the words and you kind of miss the like the genuine honest component of things i don't know would you say that can happen yeah yeah because definitions are are the foundation of anything in a debate or logic or academic thing right and when you are hung up on defining your terms um, and you're arguing that your definition is superior to their definition versus you have somebody that you're talking to in Dan and he's not arguing about definitions. He's just saying, what, what can you do? Like, what have you done? What, like, can you point to anything concrete? And I was like, I, I ran a race, you know? And it's like, okay, like what skills do you have? How can you use wow. those skills to do something or to help other people or to contribute? And so that really got me thinking because I was like, I have, I have zero skills. Like, I don't know anything. Wow. I'm just, I'm just a 22-year-old who, you know, thought he was hot shit because wow. I had a good GPA in college. And now I'm realizing like, dude, I'm, I thought I was here. I'm, I'm actually down here. Dude, what a humbling experience over here coming in with so much like intelligence and then you're like blanking on the skills question. That's insane. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's like, hey, do you know how to change the oil in this generator? I'm like, uh, no. You don't know how to change the oil? I'm like, yeah, man. Uh, 
and so it's like this is how you change the oil right this is how you you know turn on the bilge pumps this is how you do this like this is how you write a fish ticket this is how you um navigate through you know waters right this is how to read the tides this is like all these little things um it was definitely a humbling experience what um what did you bring because i know you studied chemistry and that helped i guess like school in general could help with like thinking to document it um what from like theology in particular kind of helped you in the whole fishing boat process if you had to choose something oh man uh my first reaction is it didn't it probably helped me in the sense of um I think learning, if, if you have the ability to learn and you're humble, like I really believe you can do whatever you want. Um, I'm really good at stealing other people's knowledge. And so if somebody is good at something, I'll just study that person's way of doing things. Okay, and then I'll nice. mimic it. <laughs> so it's great. Uh, I, I guess, um, that learning aspect maybe, but in terms of like, you know, blue collar jobs or what have you, like it doesn't in, in some sense, like I think the, the manual labor helps you with philosophy because it gives you a different outlook or with theology. Um, I think it just makes you a more complete person, but does theology help you change the oil in a generator? Probably not. Wow. Okay. Also, yeah, love the whole mimic what other people do thing. I mean, if you can just learn, we're supposed to learn from each other, right? So learn from them, make it your own if you can, mm-hmm. or I don't know, rinse and repeat what they're doing, whatever, <laughs> as long yeah. as you're honest, right? So, well, it, it solves the, the, you know, agile MVP concept. You want to develop the, the minimum viable product rather than doing it yourself copy what somebody else is doing and then iterate on that and add mm. tweaks where necessary. Like there's no, there's no need to do it for the first time by yourself. Just yeah. use somebody else for your baseline and then kind of go from there. Yeah. I like that. I like that for like Google also. And then now with like chat GPT and like leveraging AI, it's like, I'll just use that to go off of a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'll ask that thing, so I'll be like, "All right, let me pull from whatever okay. knowledge I just I got, got from that." Crafted. Uh, yeah, exactly. And now I can iterate on it. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, or like go off of it. Yeah, exactly, man. Um, all right, fifty-seven days fishing. You get this hands-on experience to like humble yourself from your background. Uh, what's next after after that? Um, after we got done on the boat, I really wanted to see Alaska. So Dan and I flew into Anchorage and he had a friend there that picked us up, loaned a forerunner and we spent about a week, week and a half just driving around. Uh, so we did a big loop, went up the Richardson highway, <clears throat> went up through Fairbanks, came down back to Anchorage, went to Seward, hiked some glaciers, met a lot of people, um, picked one guy up that had port like canoe portage down the Yukon and we were driving down the highway and he came out of the woods and he hadn't seen anybody in like six months maybe not six months but a, a long <laughs> period of time 
right? Sounds Alaska. He just emerged <laughs> from the woods. We pick him up. We're talking to him. He's like, yeah, I put my canoe in and I did that. I was like, oh, we're like the first people you've seen in like a while. That is crazy, wow. man. He just wanted to talk and talk. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> I bet. <laughs> it was it was a fun experience. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> um, okay, so you see Alaska, which I bet was just absolutely beautiful. Like, damn, oh, I would dude, love I to bought, go to Alaska. I bought an iPad Mini. This is 2013. I bought an iPad Mini, and I was like, "All right, here, I'm gonna take pictures of where I'm gonna build my cabin." And so, like, every 30 minutes, I'd be like, "This is the spot," and I'd be like, "I take a bunch of pictures, and I mark like the exact location." And then 30 minutes later, they're like, no, 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 this is the spot. And I, <laughs> <laughs> and I came back with like 400 pictures and I was like, I'll, I'll just go anywhere. <laughs> <You know? laughs> okay. So you were thinking about like building out a cabin. Oh, I was thinking of like going full Alaska and living out in the in wow. off grid, nowhere, hunting caribou and stuff. Yeah. Fuck yeah. I mean, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Dang, man. That's you kind of have like this natural gravitation towards like meditative states for some reason, which is interesting. Um, okay. So what steered you off from Alaska to the next chapter? I really had no direction. I was just like open to whatever happened. <clears throat> so I think my sister had a baby. So I flew from Alaska to Denver um, hung out with them for a little bit. I bought a motorcycle in Denver because after this, I had no money going in. They wrote me a check for $10,000 after the summer. And I was like, dude, I am loaded. I could live off of this for forever, you know? <laughs> so I immediately go and I drop like four grand. It wasn't, uh, it was a dual purpose, uh, bike. It was a, a Kawasaki KLR 650. And so my mm. plan was like, okay, I can take this on the road or I can take it up into the middle of nowhere and it's got good range. It had a little like rack. I could keep all my sleeping bag and all the stuff there. So I bought that in Denver. I rode out to the ranch I had worked at and I helped them with the second cutting. Um, and then I've got a lot of sisters. So another one had a baby in Charlotte, North Carolina. And asked me to be the godfather. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to plan my route back on this bike, which is not designed to be a long distance bike. This bike is like good for a two or three hour ride. Anything more, it's like your whole body starts to vibrate. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to go from here and then I'm going to go to, I, I called this connection of a friend who had a ranch in New Mexico. I was like, then I'm going to go to New Mexico. I'm going to ride from there to Dallas and then Dallas to Memphis and then Memphis. Interesting. And so I, what is this route all about? Wait a second. So Colorado and you backtrack to New Mexico, right? So so I'm I'm in Colorado and then I went South to New Mexico. It was basically a straight line East to Dallas. And then from Dallas, you know, a little bit Northeast to Memphis and then Memphis, I went over, dropped down I-40, and uh, came back out. So, um, dude, you want to talk about ultimate freedom? I didn't. I still didn't have a smartphone at this time. All I had was my iPad Mini. And so, oh, for man. directions, I would pull into the parking lot of the McDonald's, and I'd get on the McDonald's Wi-Fi, and then I'd get 
the directions on Google Maps and I'd screenshot them. And then I'd take my iPad and I'd stick it under my shirt. And then I'd ride until I couldn't remember where to go. And then I'd pull off on the side of the road, look at it, memorize the like next set of directions, and then put it back up and then keep going again. Wow. Which was, which was great for the trip to New Mexico, but going from there to Dallas, dude, I'd never been to Dallas before. I had no idea of all the interchanges and different interstates. Mm. And I got in at night and dude, that was a mess. And then oh, at one point I got lost. So I'm just looking for a McDonald's or somewhere where I can hop on Wi-Fi and like get a new bearing because <laughs> wow. it was a mess. What, where um, did you sleep? So I Stayed on a ranch in New Mexico. They had a 6,000 acre ranch that butted up to like a 100,000 acre piece. Really, really cool couple. Uh, they were older. They had three kids. Um, all of them had worked on the ranch and all of them had been like incredibly successful. Son was like high level banker. Daughter had a PhD, worked for the CDC in Atlanta. Uh, the youngest son had died in a flash flood incident trying to save a horse. Um, oh. So like, yeah, that was like a very real, like very authentic uh, time with them. Because they wow. literally just brought me into their home, gave me a great meal, sat and talked to me, told stories, showed me pictures. Wow. Um, there was this one like uh, trinket, I think like a Rubik's Cube with metal. You have to figure out how to get the, the circular thing off of this other object. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the dude comes up to me. He was, he was pretty old. And he supposedly was like early stage dementia, but he hands it to me. And so I'm sitting there while we're having a conversation, just trying to get this thing off and I can't get it. And then he comes up to me and like, doesn't really say anything. And he's just like, and then takes it off and hands it to me. And I'm like, all right, well, <laughs> again, I feel stupid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so, Yeah. That was, so I basically, I knew people in each one of those spots. Um, Got it. Okay. So Dallas for a couple days and then Memphis, um, Memphis, the bike was starting to act a little bit weird and I looked at it and I was like, oh, I don't know why. Like I was having a bump start. Like I got pulled over in Arkansas for speeding and the, the cop who pulled me over was like, um, license and registration and at the time i didn't exactly have a motorcycle license no oh, okay so i i had like this pile of papers in my wallet and i like had them all like right here and i was just like uh here you go and i handed all the papers to this cop <laughs> he's like this is a crew license for alaska like what is this <laughs> this is a south carolina driver's license and this is a geico Colorado insurance <laughs> thing and he looks back at me and then he's like just just slow it down i was like okay and i try to start the bike back up the bike won't start i'm like oh boy uh, so i have to bump start the you know what bump starting is where you pull um, the clutch and then you roll it and then you okay. let the clutch out and the, and the engine starts Okay. And so I had to bump start the bike up this hill in front of this cop. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, oh man. So I get to Memphis, <laughs> leave Memphis, an hour and a half outside, um, I ended up breaking down on the side of the highway. And I was like, all right, this isn't good. Uh, yeah. And it was, a, it was in Mississippi, technically, where I broke down. 
and I was on a back highway because I was I didn't want to take interstates. I was trying to avoid them because I was only going like seventy miles an hour, and I was on just like you know basically dirt bike going down the road. Wow. And um, I was there for probably like fifteen minutes trying to bump start it, and then this Ford Expedition pulls over. This dude hops out and he's like, hey, buddy, you have trouble? And I was like, oh, yes, please help me. <laughs> and uh, the dude, uh, he takes a look at it. And he's like, well, we'd have to take it apart, see what's wrong with it. And um, he's like, my shop's just up the road. And so wow. he went and he got, his, got a trailer. I like just held the bike in the back of the trailer and he goes into his shop. And he was a, uh, a diesel mechanic. And it was him and a buddy. Um, and they're just talking and he has the bike apart and like, again, probably 10 minutes. This guy was like really skilled mechanic. And he's like, well, there's your problem right there. You got a cracked rocker arm. And I was like, okay. So which, you know, low oil, whatever, basically me not taking care of it. Yeah. And me using the bike in a way that I shouldn't have. But, um, he is like, all right, so you need a new rock. I was like, can it be fixed? And he's like, no, you need a new rocker arm. He's like, let's, I can take you. There's a Polaris dealership. I know it's a Kawasaki. Maybe they have something. So we go to the Polaris dealership. There is nothing at the Polaris dealership. And he's like, well, I got my other buddy. <laughs> and so we go to this guy's house and this is like backwoods. Uh, <laughs> there's just four wheelers like littered on the property this dude sitting out front and he's just like holding a hose water on the ground. He's just staring at me. And then, um, I had told this guy and I was like, Hey, um, I am trying to get to Charlotte, North Carolina. Cause it's my nephew's getting baptized and I'm supposed to be there to be the Godfather. And so then they were like on a mission to help me. So, so this, you know, one guy is, he's like, he's going to North Carolina. He's got to be there <laughs> for the baptism. <laughs> and he needs a rocker arm. And the guy's like, oh, I don't have any rocker arms. And so they, uh, we get back in the car. We're like, okay. Um, he's like, well, there's a used car dealership. And I was like, okay, we can try that. So I we go to the used car dealership and this guy walks out. He's just like, you know, rubbing his hands together. And, <laughs> uh, he's like, how can I help you? And so he's like, well, he's going to North Carolina. And, he, he's, and so... Uh, <laughs> I see there's a like 1988 Dodge conversion van for sale for like 1200 bucks. And I was like, perfect. <laughs> so he grabs the keys and I turn it on, turns on, no problem. I go to put it in park and I try to drive and all the wheels lock up. And he's like, there's just a slight problem with the brakes, but it shouldn't be any problem. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I was like, probably not this. The next thing was like a, uh, a lowered F-150 uh, with like uh, a cover and a spoiler for like $6,000. And I was like, well, the price range is a bit high and I'm not going to buy that. So, um, and so we're sitting there and I was like, huh. I'm thinking about in my head, like a bus fare or something. And then this guy's like, well, I do have a Bronco I could sell you. And I was like, really? And I had been dying my entire life to buy a Ford Bronco. And so he's like, eh, we can go take a look at it. Go take a look. And it's literally like, the, it, it, was a, it was a 1984 Bronco, full size. Um, it was white body with the blue 
topper. It had uh, uh, 33s on it, winch, you know, three inch lift. It was perfect. I was like, uh, what? And he's like, uh, I couldn't ask for uh, anything less than probably 1800 bucks. I was like, 1800 Dude, that's like, insane. Sold, dude. And uh, I was like, let's go to the bank. So this is on a Saturday. We go to the bank to get money out. And the bank is closed. And I was like, uh, I guess I'll just go to the ATM. And uh, I found that there are limits at ATMs. And so I had <laughs> two cards. And so on one card, I got out 300 bucks. And on the other, I got out another 300 bucks. So now I had 600 of the $1,800. And we're sitting there in the car. And it was just kind of like this awkward pause. And I was like, well, Frankie, how about this? I give you 600 now. And then I drive there and then I wire you the rest of the money on Monday. How does that sound? And he thinks about it for a second. He's like, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> we go back to his shop. Uh, I write him an IOU. We both sign it. And then he gave me a uh, diesel and radiator services t-shirt. We took the bike and wedged it diagonally into the back of the Bronco. And then I like wow. took off and I made it back at 4 a.m. the day of. Oh my gosh, that's insane. Yeah. Dude, that's a, wow. How trusting also. Yeah, just fuck it. Why I did to get money, there? In case you were oh, if, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, that's awesome though. That's um wow. That's like uh that is such a story of just rolling with it. Just like a consistent just like rolling with the punches, you know? And you have to be resourceful in like every circumstance. Well, resourceful, it's, but it's also I was really focused on self-sufficiency at the time. I really wanted to do everything by myself. And that was a time when I literally had to rely on the kindness and trust of a stranger. Wow. So that definitely shifted my perception. You know, when I see someone broken down now, like needs to jump in a parking lot or passing somebody on a road, like my perception is totally shifted because I was that person. Right. And so it's not like, well, they should have, they should have taken better care of their vehicle or they should have their own set of jumper cables or something like that. It's like, no, like you should stop and help that person out because self-sufficiency is good, but it is not like you can't be 100%, 100% self-sufficient in literally everything. Yeah. Wow. Dude, that's beautiful. Wow. Cause like self-sufficiency is good, but it doesn't mean it's going to be the most efficient way cause you're doing it on your own. And it's not bad to ask for help from other people. Like that's a great way to just like connect with strangers is like helping them out. So yeah, dang, that's awesome, man. Cause honestly, it's so easy to just like look at someone who needs help and be like, just pass. They've made, they've <laughs> made bad choices. And so they have to suffer the consequence of their bad choices. Mm, it's an easy yeah. mindset to adopt. You forget like how you got to where you're at. Yeah. It's an easy one to adopt and it. That sounds like a shitty one to adopt <laughs> also. So damn. So you make it to the baptism and then, okay, like, does this just kind of trigger a series of like different stories along this journey? Like what's the, uh, I'm trying to figure out like. This was my Waffle House phase. I was like, well, Waffle House people experiences. But then I thought, well, also bartender would be a cool thing. And I had this, I was living uh, with a buddy and I was like, well, there's a, a place that we all would go and it was this like bar restaurant. And so I went and I was like, I want to be a bartender. I'm like, have you ever 
been a bartender? I was like, no. I'm like, have you ever served? And I was like, no. I'm like, all right, well, we serve food, so you need to learn how to do that, and then we'll train you how to be a bartender. And so I was a server for like, I don't know, five days. And uh, I went out to Colorado for the, actually, no, this is after the fact. I had a couple of jobs in between there, but I was a server for like five days. And then I went to to Colorado for the Super Bowl. And I was thinking about how much I hated being a server. And I saw like some oil field trucks drive by. And I was like, oh, that might be an interesting job. And so that is how I got interested in doing that next. But I think the first one, there's a couple odd jobs. Like I was just doing handyman stuff, like painting people's decks and or standing people's decks and like odd jobs here and there. And then <clears throat> I got a job working at Amazon, actually. Not a uh, <laughs> high-level Amazon job. I'm talking about like loading trucks at an Amazon warehouse. Um, so that was just like a contract gig. It was like November, December, um, which also affected because I'm like, oh yeah, interesting experience. I'll do it for two months because I don't really care and it's fine. Um, my $10,000 is shrinking. So I, I got to pay my apartment bill somehow. And yeah. I was working there and it was my, my thought at the time was like, I think I'm going to join the military soon. So if I do this manual mm-hmm. labor job, combine it with physical like workouts, then I'll like be more able to withstand military training. Cause it was, it was tough. It was like 10 hour shifts. You get a 15 minute break in the morning, a 30 minute break for lunch, 15 minute break in the afternoon. And apart from that, it's like, you're working. Like when you have these big shoots and these like ladder type things, the scaffolds that extend all the way to the back of a truck and you have to load all the truck like to the ceiling. You can't leave any gap, which I really enjoyed because it was like Tetris and it was like you get in the flow of it. So you're grabbing a package, stacking it. So you have half a second to analyze like which box should go where. And so as I'm doing that, I'm, you have a, a partner in there with you. And so I was, there was this one guy named Terry that I became good friends with. He was like in his fifties. Um, he was a gospel music singer. He gave me a couple of his CDs with his group. Uh, I was talking to a, a few other guys. And I remember one conversation I had with this guy and he had kids and I had very strong views on kids, which again, is like um, now I'm 20 three and why would I have an opinion on like oh, yeah you need to be hard on kids and you have discipline you need blah blah <laughs> and this guy he's working at a ten dollar an hour job with me and he's like I don't know man I just want my kids to be safe and I was like oh okay <laughs> uh, that wasn't really a factor in my criteria here like on paper you need all you know it's just this guy's just trying to provide for his wow. family and he just wants his kids to be safe Wow. Oh, okay. I'll shut up now. So, dang, another humbling type of answer. You want to talk about philosophy? Yeah, like that. That guy had things more figured out, I think, than a lot of people with strong opinions on the subject. Wow. So just by yeah, just by like simplifying it, simplifying the value. It's like you're worrying about all of these things. It's like. 
because you're trying to control everything. You can't control mm. everything. So just control that they're safe and try and then everything else will work out. Wow, man. That's cool. But that was also a cool experience because I just became friends with everybody <clears throat> and I'd hang out with them and I would go to like very random experience. Like any anytime anybody invited me to do anything, I'd be like, yeah, sure. And so I'd find myself in these situations and just like me laughing to myself like, wow, this is not where I envisioned. Because this is like not long after I graduated college. This is like, you know, nine months later. I'm like, wow. And or not even maybe like seven or eight months later. And I'm hanging out with the, I was like, dude, the, my life would look very different if I had not just made that initial choice to go to Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, it's crazy because um, you said 23. I'm over here thinking this is like your 20s, <laughs> like the whole fucking thing. No, no, no. This is all in the space of like, yeah. very. Sh- so from there, that's when I went to, went out, back out west is because I was like, all right, I want to do something where it's like a structured like job that I can do, but then I have freedom to do other things. And I really liked the style in Alaska where it was like you worked, and when you weren't working, you were doing something else. So when I was in Colorado, I saw that oil field truck, and then I found out that they work on rotations. So you either work two weeks on, two weeks off, or two weeks on, one week off, something like that. I was like, oh, perfect, because then I can just work, and then I can go do stuff in my time off. So I, when I flew back to South Carolina, I when I I found a job on Craigslist, um, and so I packed up my car and I drove out to Denver. This is like quick. It was a pretty quick turnaround, like maybe three days after I got back. And I showed up and I talked to the recruiter and I was like, "Yep, I'm I'm ready to start working today." She's like, "Okay, well your interview's in two weeks." I was like, "What?" She's like, "Yeah, this is a temp agency." I was like, "Oh." (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right um cool and so i was like well uh so i started going um i was like i don't want to wait so i'm just going to go talk to the people directly and so there's this highway from denver up to cheyenne and um i started driving up and down that highway stopping in the headquarters and saying like hey i you know like to like a job and i want to work and i'm like why are you here in person? You're like, we have a website that you can apply to, you know? And I was like, oh, okay. And then after like, you know, a day of this, the recruiter calls me back and she's like, hey, have you been going and visiting people in person? And I was like, uh, yeah. She's like, that invalidates our agreement. And I was like, oh. She's like, so you no longer have an interview in two weeks. And I was like, oh, Okay. <laughs> so now I'm in Colorado by this point I have like $800 and I'm like alright well I've got to figure this one out and so my uh, I had the, the sister that had the baby was there and so I went visiting them and my brother-in-law was like well tell you what just sit down at this computer and apply for jobs for like the next 24 hours and I was like alright I can do that and so I literally sat at the computer he came back. Yeah, he was like, I didn't actually mean like 24 straight hours. I was like, no, I'm in it. But when I was doing that, I found I found a job fair in Casper, Wyoming. And I was like, okay, this job fair is in two days. So I'm going to drive up there tomorrow afternoon. Dude, and then I'll show up to this job fair. 
And so I did. I got ready. I looked professional. I was like, I had my resume in my folder. And I walked in and I saw a recruiting table and a name that I recognized, like big company. I was like, okay, I'm going to target this guy. So I walked right up to him. I was like, hey, I'm looking for a job. And he was like, all right. We talked a little bit. And his questions for me were not like skills based. It was like, uh, how do you do with cold weather? And I was like, I love it. He's like, okay. How do you do with manual labor? And I was like, I love it. <laughs> you caught me at the right time, man. And he's like, okay, cool. And he's like, um, I seen your resume. It has an address in South Carolina. And I was like, oh yeah. Well, I figured like I would just come out here and get a job. He's like, all right. Well, I like the dedication, but like this normally takes a few months to get started. And I was like, okay. Well, I don't want to wait. So. Um, he's like, well, where are you staying now? And I said, uh, I slept in my car at the Walmart parking lot last night. He goes, okay. Uh, he's like, can you get internet? And I was like, yeah, this Starbucks at the edge of the parking lot has Wi-Fi. That's where I got dressed this morning. He was like, oh my God. Okay. Go back there, apply for the job, meet me at my office at 3 p.m. Like, okay. So I went back. He'd given me the website. I applied for this specific job. I showed back up at 3 p.m. And the dude had, he had ended up, he had been in the Navy and had been stationed in, like, spent time in Alaska. And so I said, well, like, last summer I worked on a fishing boat in Alaska. And guess what we talked about for 20 minutes in the interview? (laughs) (laughs) Nice. And so he's like, well, I mean, most people quit when it gets cold and they don't like manual labor so if you're willing to do those things he's like i'm not supposed to tell you you have it but you have it i was like great and so i started and that was like yeah the next kind of chapter wow dang man i just like i can't get over the series of stories of you just like fucking going (laughs) so like like very um, little delay between like decision and execution which at the time yeah. I didn't have any obligations, so I didn't have any like things that I need to take care of. Yeah, so but easy. still, still though, like with your upbringing, how come it didn't creep in? Like, oh, I need to like you know go have a little bit more security than what I'm doing right now. Like, did those thoughts ever creep in, or were you just Never. like all committed? It. There is nothing more exciting than like I have no clue what tomorrow is going to bring. This is great. Wow, dang! So it just felt freeing. This whole like chapter of your life yeah dang gosh man that's so cool and like i just feel like you gained so many more learnings i mean even as you're telling this i'm like wow this is years but it's like one year (laughs) it's like uh it just goes to show also how um because from my perspective i'm somebody who just like i just went to college went to grad school i mean like i'm like you know adventurous and shit but not like to this level so I've been like in the pattern, you know what I mean? And uh, time flies by when you're in the whole stay the course driven pattern. But when you fill it with these like random experiences, like what you're having, oh man, there's just so much more context to work with. I mean, I don't know. Like, well, it's the it's the long term. But so I, I guess what we were talking about before, it's like, yes, it's good depending on your goal. If your goal is to mm, get yeah. somewhere, it's not. If your goal is just to gain experiences, then yeah, it's great. Yeah. Okay. That's a good framing. Nice. Damn, dude. Cool. Um, okay. And, uh, you know, we haven't really uh, tied it to our overarching theme here, which is identity. Mm-hmm. So um, 
I don't know. Like, uh, yeah, we had talked about Tolstoy and uh, and uh, Victor Frankl. So Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Um, I had read that early in college, and that was part of what influenced my decision to change schools. So Frankl said that there are three sources of meaning. So we get meaning from our work, from our religion, and from our relationships. And so I think what I was doing is instead of having a combination of all three, at certain periods in my life, I was emphasizing on one thing. So for at one point, it was, you know, religion. It was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make this my academic pursuit since this is something that I believe. And then having the conversations with people like Dan and, and the experiences, I turned my work into the meeting itself. So in the beginning of your life, it's like religion, studying philosophy, you have those values from your upbringing to like anchor you forward and then boom, next chapter, focusing on work and the experiential meaning that comes from that yeah. essentially. Yeah. Wow. Beautiful. Nice. Dang. That's cool. How it all, and, um, just to go on the religion piece really quick, have you always, uh, just like uh, lean towards Christianity or have you like, was there a religious studies component of that degree? It's where like you brought into other religions. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely studied other belief systems and such. And it really later, like I asked myself if I had been born in a different culture with different beliefs, would I still be that thing today? And if like the answer is yes, then I'm not living authentically or I'm, I'm not living like in a honest way like if if you mm. are searching for whatever is true then everybody should arrive at the same source if you're just sticking to the cultural norm then you know if if i had been born another faith tradition then i would still be that faith tradition got it so okay. asking myself that question yeah that and i don't know like it, it, that's a really tough one to answer. Really? Okay. So, or, so you're talking about how, I guess the, the argument of if you're born in like a Christian environment, then obviously it's easier for you to like be on that Christian path. But if you were born in like the middle East, for instance, or something, and you were raised Muslim, Muslim see, yeah, like it, whatever, you know, maybe you're raised by uh, atheist or agnostic parents. And that, that is a uh, worldview right? Like you yeah. interpret the world via this system of beliefs. If you're raised yes. in that environment, like, do you just go back to it because that's what you were raised as? Or do you examine mm. the criteria for each separate worldview and belief system and then choose this one because mm. it's true? Wow. And yeah, honestly, there's a lot to unpack there because it's like, the truth of God can look different too. Or this is where it gets kind of messy because I like, I like an objective truth and like, like living by that. I think it's important to be able to choose something. I think there's a lot of value in choice, I guess. And, um, but obviously that truth can look different, but it's still like the same truth. So I guess what matters is that you're still pursuing that truth, which maybe is like goodness, love, good values and so on, even though it looks different. I don't know. I'm kind of spitting out a lot here, but yeah. I don't know. What's your take on that? 
does objective truth exist? Uh, if if that if I think that so there, there I think there needs to be two questions: Does objective truth exist, and does free will exist? And how you answer those questions mm. is going to dictate like what you gravitate towards. Mm, okay. Which do I have an answer well, on both of those? Uh, I, I believe objectivity does exist. Does free will exist? I don't know. That's a that's a really interesting question to dig into. There's a lot of great minds in history that don't believe like that don't believe that the choices we make are totally of our own conscious will. Is it just because there's too many influences at play here? So uh there's two sides to it there's the religious and there's the from the psychology series like bf skinner determinism right is the idea that Mm -hmm. you know it can be reduced to environmental factors or genetic predispositions and so it's like the choices that you make you may think that you're making but you're being influenced in ways that you don't even realize or there's like in yeah. a theological sense, it's like, you know, free will doesn't exist because God has preordained the steps that you're going to take. And therefore, when you take them, it's just a fulfillment of God's yeah. plan, right? So, but you don't have to be like religious to say that is free will actually a thing? Um, yeah. I, I think a question like that, it's um, fun to debate. The, is it does it yeah. have utility like is it useful uh i don't know it's, it's like the question of how many how many angels can dance on the head of a pin right from the middle ages it was like the the, the ivory tower philosophizing of like let's just argue about things that don't matter for the academic exercise of arguing mm, got so it. i'm not saying that, like that's an important question it's not really one that i worry about it's like i i live in a way that i believe objective truth exists and that i believe i'm in control of my actions and it's not like oh well i can't help it because i i don't actually have any um any part that i can play it's just preordained by the environmental factors or by god or what have you got it okay yeah yeah i don't know i was just curious because i was trying to tie it to i would like to believe that no matter what upbringing you have there's still like a sense of truth within the context of that that is like the same truth that we're all talking about and maybe the pursuit of that whatever it looks like even though it's objective it can still look different and then i don't know i'm just trying to like solve it so that everybody can still get to the same place i guess Oh, I see. Um, okay, so so this there is uh, I can't remember his name, but there is a tradition where it's like a universal truth. So like there are the roots of truth that sprout into different plants, so that yeah, from different traditions. There's an element of truth. Um, personally, I would disagree. I think really, yeah. Okay, I, I think there are. Yeah, there's elements of truth in everything, but I, I think that it's a little bit of trying to make people feel better. Like, I don't mm, want okay. to disagree with you, so I will say that there is an element in what you were saying, and so therefore, you're okay. Mm, yeah, got it. Well, I yeah, I see how that can be like a excuse for something, and then that 
gets away from like honestly like exploring it you know what i mean because you don't want to like step on toes or cross barriers i'm not saying that you can't have that belief i'm i'm just giving my opinion on it which you know as we've seen counts for not a whole lot (laughs) (laughs) that's funny (laughs) no yeah okay so you're going on these series of experiences self sufficiency and why do you get the idea to go into the military um so i guess it wasn't just a flash of inspiration it was some you know when when you ask somebody why they join the military you get a few different responses it's like one i, I want to serve my country one is because my dad did it um at the end of the day uh, I joined for the adventure. Um, I was just, it, I thought it sounded exciting and fun. And it was one of the old, like in terms of the transcendent, that's the one thing that I hadn't experienced. You know, I, I, I read a lot and I had read that there was like nothing as transcendent as being in combat. And so I wanted to be in combat and experience that and have a goal and have a team and all, all that type of deal. Okay. Um, honestly, I don't have a clear like textbook definition for transcendent. Could you, could you define that? Sure. So the, the, it's like rising above the corporeal confines. So like, the things that you experience with your five send five senses, a transcendent experience is one that extends past that. Interesting. It's, um, like, it's deeper. So like that spiritual type wow. of thing. Yeah. Wow. Wait, so where did you get the idea of transcendent? And are you uh, reflecting on that in hindsight? Or did you have this as like a constant intention? No, no, no. I just knew that like that I really wanted to do this. And I, like I, I had planned on dropping out of college. My parents were like, well, how about you just join after college and then like focus on getting your degree right now? And so I said, okay, that makes sense. Like, you know, I have a scholarship. If I don't use it, then I lose it. So I finished college and then part of it was, you know, doing all these, those things was like, well, if I do this and I still want to join, then I'll join, but I'll see this first. I did these things. And when I was working in the oil field, I was like, you know what, if I keep doing this, I'll, I'm going to do this for a really long time. So I need to either leave right now or stay here for like a career. And so I did my research. I decided like, I'm going to, I want to do, I want to join specific, like I looked at every branch in special operations. I knew I wanted to do something there because those are the guys that get to go do stuff. And Ranger Regiment had the shortest pipeline. You could go from, you know, signing up on day one to being deployed overseas in like nine months. And I was like, I want that. I don't want to wait two and a half or three years for like Mm. SEALs or special forces or something like that. And so oh, yeah, I walked into the recruiter's office on my 24th birthday and I was like, Hey, I'd like to enlist with the 11 X-ray option 40 contract. And they're like, okay, uh, <laughs> take this test. Uh, we'll drive you down and get some physical like checkups and stuff. And then I, uh, I went out to basic training in spring of, uh, 2015. Um, okay. So you chose that because you didn't want to wait. For a pro- prolonged period of time. I wanted to be 
I wanted to be part of a, a more elite unit with like really high standards. But every other, so if you go to SEAL training, you go through basic training, and then there's the selection course, and there's the training pipeline, and you're learning languages, and you're learning different skill sets. And so it's three years before you even yeah. get to go overseas. Got it. Whereas Ranger Regiment, where I ended up going, it's like you can go, and then you show up, and it's like on-the-job training. So you're you're deploying, but your role is just lower level until you get promoted, and then you're in the next role, but you're still actively involved and like doing doing stuff real world stuff got it okay and the criteria to be like accepted as a part of that group is it like tough to get in or how does how does that work yeah so typical the the path i follow is it's a little bit different now in order but it's you go to uh basic training and then you go to ait or advanced individual training or in um you want to be like basic infantry skills. And then I went to airborne school, which is you have to do five jumps, uh, five parachute jumps. And then you go to RASP, which is the Ranger Assessment Selection Program. That's an eight week program. And um, that's like a 50% attrition from there, historically speaking. It's been higher or lower, depending. Um, but the real like, the, real, the hard part about that is instead of spending three years in a pipeline where a lower percentage comes through, they'll take a higher percentage, but then most, or not most, but a lot of guys will wash out in the first six months. They'll just voluntarily choose to go somewhere else because they don't uh, enjoy their life very much. Really? Wait, what, what, what do they not enjoy about it? Um, your life as a ranger private, if you don't have your ranger tab, which you have to go to ranger school to get your, so you pass ranger selection, you're in ranger regiment, and then ranger school is a leadership course, so it's like anybody in the military can go to it. 62 day course, which ends up taking longer for most people, because it's three phases, you know, usually recycle a phase, but that tab gives you like, after you get your tab, you're a tab, is what you're called. So a tab spec four, or specialist E4 with the tab, is tab spec four. If you don't have a tab, then you are like at the very bottom of the totem pole, and your job is to make coffee, sweep the floor, take out the trash, and uh. do all of like the grunt work, and just carry heavy stuff. Uh. You're just carrying stuff, um, and you have to move with. Uh, I use air quotes. A sense of urgency. So everything that you do is like a hundred and ten percent. If you're told to like go somewhere you're not we weren't allowed to walk anywhere at work if you were told to do something you had to sprint to go get it done <clears throat> oh my you had gosh to your locker you had you'd have a task conditions and standard you'd be like your task empty your locker <laughs> the the standard is you know every item out with the shelves wiped clean and the standard is you know it, it, the time hack would be, you know, like two minutes. And so you'd be given every day, you're given a task that is basically unachievable to meet. And you have to try as hard as you can to meet it. And then when you inevitably fail, then you get punished with like physical exercise. And you're, and if you don't have your ranger tab, you're not allowed to have your feet on the ground because you haven't been a mountain. So you're basically, you have to elevate your feet in a locker and do like handstand push ups instead. Wow. <laughs> so, 
once you once you go to ranger school and come back, then you have the right to do like normal push-ups. But until then, you have to have your feet elevated. It's just so crazy how like throughout this entire episode, there's all these common themes of like constant humbleness. There's like this tug and pull of uh, adventure, but also like still discipline, positive constraints, which makes so much sense why you would want to join the military. Um, so what's the point of like all this grunt work with urgency, setting you up to fail, being punished for it? Like, what is that? What's the point? What does that do it's to you? Very stressful. <laughs> You're living in a constant state of stress. Um, but the point of it is stress inoculation. You get that a little bit in the selection, but it's only eight weeks long. For a proper stress inoculation, that takes a lot of time. And so you get so used to, okay, how do I get through this task? And so you have to break things down into steps. It's like, all right, like you'd be told you have to do this thing and you'd be planning, all right, I'm going to grab that thing first, then I'm going to do this next, and then I'm going to throw that over there. And that's how I'm going to get this done. So then when it comes to if you are in a live fire situation and you have tracer rounds going off and machine guns and stuff like that, you're like, okay, what do I need to do to assess this breach or to set this charge or to establish this base of fire? I need to do this, this, and that. So it seems okay. like it's just a bunch of, you know, uh, frat like oh they're, they're just doing this because yeah. they, and there, maybe there is a, a little element of enjoyment there but the the goal it's of like it the culture is, the, yeah. is like preparing you for the actual situation so the, the guys for that sure. don't take well to that or they can't pass the, the physical tests um or they can't pass ranger school end up getting sent to other units within the military or the army got it okay that makes sense Okay, I see why they would have a lot of urgency too, because in a real life scenario, you want to be able to act under stress and urgency, but it, it shouldn't be, it should like set you up for the most positive stress you can in like a, I guess like a death defying scenario, worst, worst case. Yeah. And you're doing it with thing. everything. That like if you're in the selection program and you're on the bus, it's like you have 45 seconds to be off the bus. There's 53 people on there. So to get 53 people off a bus in 45 seconds, every single person has to be absolutely killing themselves, sprinting to get off. And if one person wow. goes back, then you, then everybody fails. And so you get on, get try back again. on, uh, get on, okay. try again. Yeah. Oh, wow. And so okay. what you have is that these very simple tasks, these, these basics, these fundamentals that everybody is really good at. And when everybody is really good at something, then you can rely on them and you don't have to wonder, hey, did, did whoever remember to bring the you know grenade launcher? You know, everybody has everything. Everybody tied their knots correctly. Wow. Everybody knows exactly what their you know sectors are. And so you're not thinking about that. All you're thinking about is doing your specific task. Wow. That is, it's like the, like a simple task, but so much embedded inside of it. And I love the whole community aspect, and this makes sense why it probably like set you up to have really meaningful relationships because um, you're performing, like everyone's performing together on these like simple things. Yes. So, and it makes so much sense how this all ties into real life scenarios. And, and you want to do a good Interesting. job. Interesting. So like when you, if you're a private and you're there and you have a job to do together, 
you don't want to let your buddy down because if you don't try yes. hard, then both of you have to do push-ups. So now you're working hard, not just for the principle of doing a good job, but because you want to be there to support whoever's next to you. Wow. Dang. Yeah. That let people down. That's, um, that's very, that's just like such a good testament on why being in military training is important too, because you really don't get that in many other there's so much room to like let people down in other contexts oh, yeah. in life without it mattering that much. You know what I mean? So to have it like where it ma everything matters when you let that person down, that just, that seems really, really impactful. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned relationships. I think we were kind of on the, the Frankel theme of, you know, meaning. And I started having like, a better understanding for like why people value relationships so much. Because up to that point, I was very transactional in the beginning in my relationships and it became less so. But then in the military, it was like, you're doing this so that you don't let somebody down. You form a connection with somebody. You get to know someone really well. They know everything about you. You know everything about them. You have a created depth. Um, and that gives you meaning in and of itself, regardless of what you're doing. So the meaning is just in the connection itself and that uh, was able to see you, set you up to be able to see that? So so let me, I guess, explain what I mean by... Um, yeah. The reason for doing something. So I want to be good at loading packages at my Amazon warehouse because my job performance matters, my reputation matters. And so I'm going to work hard so that people associate my name with a good job because work is important. Mm. I want to oh, practice these spiritual disciplines or whatever, because it's good to be a, you know, solid Christian or whatever. And so I'm going to practice to the letter of the law, at least at one point, um, all yeah. these things, because that is what matters. Then in this context, it's, I'm going to try really hard to do my absolute best because if I don't, I care about this other person and it's going to negatively affect them. Like it changes everything. Like your, your, your training, right? My physical training. I remember, uh, we had a exercise. Um, where I was carrying a litter and I almost dropped it. I was like, man, my grip strength is not good enough right now. And so I started, I incorporated a ton of like farmer carries into my training because I never wanted to be carrying somebody on a litter and then not be like drop them because my grip strength is too weak. So it affects your motivation for doing things. Because you have a greater sense of responsibility now and it brings up more accountability so that you can be stronger for other people. Exactly. Wow. Fuck yeah. Nice, man. That's awesome. Dang. And you really feel like military training and being in that community was like, like you didn't ha have that sense beforehand. No, not the same. There was a lot of times where it's like, I, I, I'm a weird dude, right? The collection is, or the military is a collection of other weird dudes. And so you can, like, everybody is weird to their regard. Like, what, like when I had friends in college and I, if I, you know, left the movie on a Friday and I was like, I'm going to go run. They're like, okay. Uh, 
you're not going to connect with that person in the same sense as you would of lying in the dirt, pulling security with somebody, and it's raining on, and you're like, this could get any worse, yeah. and then it starts raining, and then you're like laughing together. Like, yeah. That is a different style of connecting with somebody mm. than something else. Um, so, yes. <laughs> 100%. Got it. Nice, man. And do you feel like that's carried onto your life now and just how you approach relationships in general? I guess... Not just like in a work context, but even outside of that? Yeah. The, the turning point for me, I left. So I, I did a bunch of different jobs um, in a deployable role. And then I went to become an instructor for that selection program. And I realized like I got the most satisfaction out of seeing the transformation and these people that were trying to join regiment and they were pushing themselves and trying hard. And I was playing a part in that. Wow. I found that incredibly meaningful. And so that started to shift a little bit. And then, you know, personal relationships, I met my wife and I started thinking about like, how do I, you know, going back to conversations with the ranch, like how, do, what do I want my life to look like? Or what do I want to be when I grow up? I'm still trying to answer that question. Um, but it's opened me up to the possibility of being in a giving relationship, like giving wow. in a relationship, like not transactional. It's like, mm. if I continue to do things that benefit me, like I'm going to be 70 years old and alone. If I want to be 70 years old and reflect upon a happy life, I'm going to have to make sacrifices and do things that I don't want to do or things that I don't want to do for a period of time and, and make and learn how to compromise with somebody else. Um, so, so that was pretty um, pivotal for me. Wow, man. I mean, that's like the beauty in this whole um, like young life crisis you went through away from just like staying within the constraints of going on these experiences, but putting that inside of a connection because it's like, you know, the whole, it's the journey of like what the connection actually brings and the meaning inside of that instead of like the ending transaction of what that person does for you. So I guess, is that kind of like what you're learning along this? Exactly. Right. That's right. And it's so it's not just what can this person do for me, but how can I enable this person to be successful? And if I can, I, I know like for me, what, like what I find satisfaction in if I can work with a group of people and teach and coach and try to mentor and they're working hard and they're advancing and they're successful then from like a purely occupational standpoint that is work that I will find meaningful. Wow. Enabling other people to transform essentially or go through like a transformation similar to your transformation that you've been going through. Dang dude. Exactly. Yeah. Dang, that's awesome. And and you said um, this like set you up to meet your wife too. Like what what did that look like meeting your wife? I'm just curious, honestly. Uh, we actually met at my cousin's wedding. Okay. So it wasn't the fact that, you know, because of something I was feeling or something like that. It was just the um, willingness to kind of open up mm. and to think about somebody else's well-being. Which, you know, was not an easy transit. Like, I, I am not an easy person to be in a relationship with, right? Like I said, I'm a weirdo. 
and and I I like certain things, and it's like my way of relaxing is going out and doing like chainsaw and logs and stuff <laughs> like that. And so, like, thankfully, my wife's a super patient person, um, but she um, she like took the time to like really try to understand me and get to know me, and that you know, obviously made me uncomfortable. Like, <laughs> yeah, once I like was more okay with it it was like okay there's a deeper level of a relationship mm. that is you know you get more satisfaction out of okay so f- more so than transactional got it okay and that yeah relates with this whole emphasis on connecting by opening up nice dang so she had to like why was she so patient with you do you think I guess question. she just like she just liked you. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, really, really good looking. Was this was this pre beard or post beard? You know, that's that's the question. <laughs> pre beard, yeah. I didn't grow it out until we got married. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Um, oh man, I kind of lost my train of thought here. So we were talking about the culmination, I think, of these three sources of meaning and how like. I am today, yeah. stuff like that. I, I would say, I would say, like the feeling that I was describing of when you're surrendering to the pain in an ultra marathon, when you just like stop fighting it and give into it. That's kind of my philosophy today. It's like, what is my purpose in life? What am I supposed to be doing? What, uh, like, if you have that mentality, I feel like you're always thinking and looking and researching and switching jobs and stuff like that versus just how can I like what's available to me right now and what areas are there needs you know I'm a big fan of the there's a Aristotle quote uh, he said where your talents and the needs of the world lie or where your talents and the needs of the world meet there lies your vocation right and so I think I have a, I, I had to do a lot of like self-reflection when I was leaving the military because I didn't want my identity when I got out to be like, I'm a veteran or I, this, I, I am a rain, like I am myself. Mm, got it. I did that. And I did that because of certain qualities and those qualities are like, I am the, it's like the, the, uh, James Clear atomic habits rather than saying, I'm going to do this because I'm whatever. You say, I'm going to do this because I'm the type of person mm. who likes to push myself or I'm the type of person who likes to do X, Y, and Z. Nice. Dude, I love that because then you can reinforce discipline within that by leading with that. Whereas a lot of times people might do something and they might just stick with it because they like the idea of discipline. So they're just being disciplined for the sake of it instead of something that like really aligns with them, which, yeah. Might, might be what you're saying here. I guess like ch- choosing the power of choice. So like, how did you define your, I guess after reflecting on like your natural talents, that's how you identified what your purpose is. And then your identification just like aligned with that. Is that, I don't know. Can you put that together for me? Yeah, sure. So I sat down What I, I was, I, I wanted to do something other than the military. And so I said, I need to like reflect on who I am today. So I went, I talked to a psychologist and so like if you're in the military, you have access to psychologists slash career counselors. And I said, I'd like to take 
any and all personality tests that you have. And so I took a slew of personality tests. There was one, I think the career skills and interest inventory, and it breaks it down into different domains. There's seven domains. My three were adventure, producing, influencing. And then it lists common career choices that those people find satisfaction in. Like military is one of them. Um, and sales was on there. And so I said, okay, what type of sales do I already have a background in? Um, I looked at that and then I started talking to people. And in every conversation that I had, I would refine it a little bit more and have a clearer direction. And my my overall goal was not to be a, like managing a group of individuals. My overall goal was not yet clarified. I was like, I'll, I'll be a account executive, individual contributor, and then find the next thing to do. But in mm. the path, it was like, I really like the teaching new people when they come on. I like helping yeah. people with problems. I like people that hit a wall and are struggling with motivation and, and talking through it with them. And then it just so happened that the position came open and it was like, oh, this is basically things that I've already done in different contexts already wow. that I took a lot of enjoyment in. And so it would make sense that I just naturally followed what I, my tendencies were and like, I don't want to say fell into the role, but it just kind of naturally came together. Got it. Okay. Dude, it's so funny how like all this is connected. Adventure producing influencing. That's like what this whole episode has been. (laughs) And that's like, that's like what you are. Um, Okay. So by following your natural talents and then also, I guess just based off of all these experiences that you've had, did that just give you a sense of understanding yourself like a lot more? The experiences, I think the most valuable thing that I've taken away from all the people I've interacted with is meeting happy and unhappy people. And uh, there's a trend with all the happy people is they are uh, not just good at what they do. They are helpful with their skills. Mm. They are socially connected. And, um, you know, they have like a, I don't know, a giving mindset rather than just a taking. Yeah. And so did it help me clarify mine? It's like, I I want to emulate those qualities and and I have a, maybe a larger bank of individuals to like reference as to what I want to be like and who I don't want to be like. So Mm. I think that is, that would be my takeaway. Wow. No, that's, that's really good. And now that you're getting to this point in your, oh, actually I had a question. Do you see yourself, cause I know you're in management today so that you can enable transformation other people give as a way to connect. A little testament on giving too, it's not always like one-sided, like the act of giving and being selfless, like that's a way of connecting. So it's actually like a, it's a dual um, connection there instead of what other people might think. Um, but, uh, yeah. Do you see yourself going into like some sort of coaching, um, or do you think you're going to stay the management path? My, uh, what I would love to do eventually is the experience that I had in Colorado on that ranch was incredibly important just to like do something like if you are struggling in your life, you have anxiety or depression, or you're trying to figure out what your next step is. I think the worst thing you can do is like stay at your computer and research stuff. 
like the best thing that you can do is hard labor. And when you're working on another task, then something will naturally come to you. It'll, a thought will pop up in your head. And if you have someone wow. to talk that thought through, um, you can develop a plan of action. So what I would love to do is have a piece of property with a bunch of cabins on it. And so for um, if somebody is wanting to come like be an intern on the farm, or they got out of the military, they don't know what they're going to do, or they just got done with college, they can come, they can live in the cabin for free, their payment is going to be their labor, and they can just work there during their transition period, figure out what the next step is, and then once that's clarified, then they can go action on it. So that I would love to do that. Dude, what a business model. Holy shit. That sounds sick, honestly. Yeah. So it, it's, again, like a pretty sharp... It looks on paper like a pretty sharp turn. Like I'm, I'm super happy with where I'm at right now. I'm not. This isn't something like, oh yeah, in six months I'm gonna start doing. It. Like this is, this is like a long term play. I, I don't know when that's going to be. That's just like an idea in my head. Um, and I know that when the time is right, then it'll naturally it'll just come to fruition and dude that's such a good point too though because you can visualize like i guess like an ideal long term but you don't want to get into the specifics of exactly how it'll look because that might close out how it's like supposed to look i guess so you're kind of like surrendering it but it's there and you're growing towards it kind of thing right because you because if you are fixated on that and you're doing another job, right? Yeah. It means you're going to be distracted. And mm, so yeah. I still take my work seriously and I want to be focused on it. Um, but it's just a season of life. Like you can enjoy a season of life and then when that season ends and you go on to the next one and then that and then the next one, like I don't ever want to stop working. Yeah. Like I, I would love to, if I lived to 100 years old, I'd love to be working my entire life. Dude, yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't like what the fuck else are we gonna? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess, I mean, yeah, working and exp yeah, I like the balance of working it's and just experience. Gonna look yeah, differently based upon the season. Yes, yeah. I mean, it seems like it'll come full circle and it'll be that because I guess the appeal to hard labor is you're active, you're working, but it also provides like a context that you can reflect also, and I guess. Once you get to that phase, you'll be able to focus on enabling transformation for other people like you did with yourself. So yeah, man, that makes so much sense. Yeah. Um, and then also I really like the whole season in life uh, focus because when you look in hindsight, I, I think you were saying this earlier, like you can connect the dots and it makes so much sense. And you're like, okay, my entire personality is embedded inside of all this, but it doesn't have to make like, you should like just ride out the season and let that like blossom, I guess, and trust that it's good. Exactly. All right, man. Well, I guess to come to a close on this episode, where you're at now is focusing on family, right? You got, it seems like you've had all these experiences, your careers in this season uh, at a management level. And uh, yeah, man, can you talk to where you're at as far as family goes and, um, I guess what your mindset is. I know you have a baby coming on the way. So yeah, like where are you right now? Yeah, um, It's basically just uh, experiences, right? Experiences with family. So 
My nephews play sports. I want to go see their, their games. Uh, I want to go see my other nephews uh, run cross country and, you know, spend time with my wife. And work is a way that I can impact other people, but just provide for my family. Like work, work is not everything. Family is the predominant thing, but I'm, I'm working towards having a blend right? Mm. Trying to be appreciative of the small things that, um, you know, it's kind of the antithesis of being hyper-focused on one. Got it. Okay. So like pairing work as an enabler so that you can provide for your family and then focusing on the connection of family. Being able to yeah, enjoy it. Nice. Oh, that's beautiful, man. And I guess like I can already tell you're emphasizing not being so rigid too. Cause with family, if you're super rigid, then it's kind of, you become, it doesn't really work. Anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not the military. <laughs> We're not doing bus. Drills, yeah. That's for sure. Awesome, man. Well, that's, that's great. Um, all right, dude. Well, I mean, this was an awesome, well, hey, yeah, I, I appreciate you having me. I'm impressed that you're interviewing skills. Ah, uh, not an easy thing to do dude thanks i mean yeah we've been going for forever now so i'm sure as you could tell the quality <laughs> my uh <laughs> my train of thought is definitely getting lost so um thanks so much for thanks so much for coming on seriously like i said at the beginning of this man i just really respect you as a person and uh i take a lot of influence from you you're just like a good guy um so thanks for sharing your story there was so much embedded in here on like establishing what your identity is, the power of like choosing that and tying it to a purpose and leaning towards your uh, natural talents as like a guide towards that as well. So yeah, man, this was a great episode and I really appreciate you joining. Awesome. Well, thanks Reed. I enjoyed it. If you enjoyed this story, I encourage you to check out others and stay tuned for bi-weekly episodes. I'm also a practicing life coach offering one-on-one -on -one services that help you bridge the gap from where you are to where you want to be. Feel free to check out readranky.com to learn more. Thanks.